this episode, Justice League International number 20, cover dated December 1988. Welcome to the 20th episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of JLI. My co-host today is an accomplished artist, a singer, a songwriter, a designer, an actor, a puppeteer, and on top of all that, he has the audacity to have great hair, too! Some people, I tell you. Folks, please help me welcome the dastardly creative Luke Dobb. Welcome to the Embassy, Luke. Thanks for being here. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing fantastic, Shag. It's so good to finally be here with you. It's crazy. I was going back through my messages, and I looked, and I said, well, okay, when did Luke and I first start planning this? It was two years ago, almost to the, almost to the month. When long we, years. Well, and the crazy thing is, back then I was like, "Hey, you want to be on the show? I'm so excited! Oh my gosh, I finally get to do something looped up!" And you're like, "Oh, I've never read that stuff." And yeah, like, no, never read it. Never <laughs> read it. You did read it before t- tonight, right? Wait, what? You, you did. Read, <laughs> yes, Shag. You did read issue twenty for tonight, right? Eventually, Shag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys at home, you missed the whole correspondence about he's all ready for the episode. And we're like, here we go. Issue 25. What? 25? 25. 25. I'm ready. What? Uh, Luke? Got a booster gold Blue Beetle episode here. It's going to be great. <laughs> Let's go. I started reading. It was reading your notes. I was reading your notes. And I'm going, wait a minute. This isn't matching up at all to what I'm I'm talking about here. Where's so the then, vampires? <laughs> yeah, where's the vampire? Where's the vampire? Where's the solemn story here? Where's, you know, where's the dark brooding tale? Oh, that's a different issue. Oh, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) That was the other thing is you contacted me so fast. I was thinking like, you know, I've got like what? Okay, so it was like five issues between 20 and 25. So that means like, you know, Shag's going to call me in a couple years. Oh, snap. Yeah, so I thought I had more time. You sprung it on me real quick. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I guess we're talking talking about 25. So I was looking at your notes and I thought, this does not match up. I went back to my trades and I'm like, okay, I see what I did. I see what I did. Wrong issue. But I have read issue 20. It's a beautiful issue and I am so excited to talk to you about it. See, this is what happens when I invite my friends, folks, for these things. You know, I, I didn't I didn't get a consummate professional. I got a Luke Dobb. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> I'm just actually no. That's it. I was setting myself up with a segue, honestly, to point he out was. that Luke Dobb is not just a friend of mine, folks. Not just a man with amazing hair. Not just a man who I've sat down and had multiple meals with. He is an accomplished artist. As I said in the explanation, the guy he's amazingly talented. If you go to a comic convention and you see the Dobb Creative booth, you've got to stop and see <laughs> his work. It is amazing. Well, that is incredibly flattering of you. I thank you for that. I do work really hard on making the art that I do and try to do stuff in, in a style that's unique to me and all the ways that I've trained and, and have worked over the years. So, yeah, that means a lot. I really appreciate hearing that. You know, i got to ask you, and, and, and I, I hope drawing comparisons is okay. And I, I'm not an artist, and I have no tact, so I have no idea if what I say is out of line. <laughs> we know. We know. But, 
<laughs> I think the people at home know as well. Um, <laughs> you have a very, 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 very clean line. You have a gorgeous line. The way you draw your your line work is just beautiful. And interestingly enough, this is the first issue featuring Ty Templeton. Ty Templeton mm. also has a beautifully clean line. Now, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm not suggesting Ty was an influence on you, but who kind of influenced you on, on getting you to where you are with your art style? You know, that's funny. Uh, it's funny you would ask because really, as much as I love comic books and comic book art, it probably was less comic books mm-hmm. and more animation that oh. brought me to, to where I was. Let's see. In comic book art? Yeah. So I would say like my, my earliest influences were watching Super Friends and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I remember going into sixth grade, I watched The, the Little Mermaid came out. Okay. And I remember the opening scene from that and the boat passing by. Uh, the camera's view, just in the opening sequence there, there were dolphins swimming by, and it was so gorgeous. And I sat there in that seat, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what I want to do. I want to make cartoons someday. So I would say, like, comic books are definitely in the mix for me, but pro- probably even more so is is like a Disney animation style, a little bit of anime in there. And then the other thing, too, is I, I trained in graphic design mm-hmm. uh, when I was in school. So my thought was always, like, I'm going to go off and, and do branding for companies. You know, I'm going to make logos and websites and book covers or whatever. And and so as when uh, in, in recent years, when I started kind of revisiting my art style, I found that my love for design and organization and clean, you know, cleanliness there and order and composition, they all kind of made their way into the illustration style, too. Uh, So, so yeah, so I I feel like the design and the the cartooning, all those things have sort of melted together to create a a real clean look for me. But, um, yeah, I I really love that look. And, 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 And I love trying, sometimes the challenge for me, too, is... I'll love to to sit with the design and think like, especially with human anatomy, like if I can, if I can portray the human body uh, in fewer lines, like the the fewer lines that I I can do it in, the more of a mastery I feel like I have Mm. of that. Okay. Um, and that's that's just my personal you know take on it. Other people have uh, other approaches that are completely valid, but that's just a challenge that I, I love to, to give to myself when I'm drawing. So kind of a Steve Rude, um, Dave Mazzicelli so yeah. kind of uh, minimalism there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Alex Toke, big, big inspiration, too. I would say, oh, yeah. You know, when you look at art styles. So uh, his work is absolutely stunning. I mean, I could give you a whole list, but it would take me a long time to I'd have to go. I'd want to go through all my art books and come a little bit more prepared. Since <laughs> just going to throw that at you you know there's just so there's just so many oh you're always borrowing as an artist you know you're you'll take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and and hopefully you know you'll you'll find something that is unique to you when you're uh uh, when you're taking all those, you know, you want to be the funnel. You're, you're looking, you're you're absorbing all the stuff, and then when you create something, you know, you're going to have all these elements in there. But hopefully, it has your voice and stamp on it when you're done. You know, as you said, animation that sort of really resonated with me because I think about a lot of the pieces I've seen in your commissions and some of the ones I bought and Firestorm and Hawk Girl and things like that. Everything, they're, they're, and again, not an art guy, so I may phrase this completely wrong, and I may be completely wrong when I say this, but I don't remember seeing a lot of right angles in your work. Everything's curved, everything's round, everything's naturalistic, everything almost feels like it's in motion even when it's not. 
because mm. of the roundness and the curves and the the not right angles. And I, I just think it works. It gives a fluidity. That maybe that's the word I'm looking for. There's a fluidity in your work. It's just beautiful. I'm so glad you say that. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, because fluidity. That's it's not a word that I've used, but I have used lyrical. Oh, okay. To describe my work, but they're. I mean, it's basically saying the same thing. I, I feel like so. I love like dance, and and to me that uh, just the like the human form is one of my favorite things to draw too. So like on my Instagram feed, I, I follow like ballet dancers because I don't know if you've noticed, but those guys are ripped. And there's no pose that, you know, where you can't see like every muscle on their body, but you're right. It's fluid and there's a poetry to their motion. And I love conveying that in the, in the drawings that I do. So, oh, I'm, I'm super flattered that, that, uh, that that's a word that you draw from when you describe my work. That's, that's exactly where I want to be. So thank you so much. Well, cool. And I'm glad we queued up this discussion with art because, I mean, I think we're going to end up spending a lot of time talking about Ty Templeton and his art style, too. And uh, yeah. that's because, I mean, there's been a lot of trepidation from a lot of the, uh, the listeners. You know, they're worried like, ah, Kevin McGuire leaving. You know, those were my favorite issues. Well, I, I'm here to tell you, folks, the Templeton stuff is also amazing. You know, yeah. it's so and, and after that, you know, we've got Adam Hughes and over in Just League Europe, we're going to have Bart Sears. There's so many great artists to come. So I think it's a uh, no kidding. This is a great way to kick this off. So thank you there's, so much for being here. There's some great artists. Oh, yeah. Ha- happy to be here. There's some great artists in the legacy of this book. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. Except for in annual number four, there's a guy who did some background panel inking, and we'll talk about him <laughs> later when we get there. But it's a very specific story, folks. And All you right. Know, you guys won't find out for like three or four years, but there's a good yeah. story in there. We'll get there. Right. <laughs> and if I have my way, I'm going to have the artist on that episode to discuss it. So Perfect. All right. So uh, before we get too much further, because okay. We've already completely sidetracked. Those at home were hoping to hear about MangaCon. We're like, what? What was all this about art and dancers? What happened here? Okay, folks. I know what, I know we digress some folks, but just settle down. We'll get there. All right. Right now, though, we are going to take a second to thank our sponsor. This episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into that month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. This month, I have brought one specifically because of Ty Templeton's premiere in this issue. I picked up Batman Adventures Trade Paperback Volume 1. And if you know what it is, you already went, oh! Oh, yeah. If you don't, <laughs> you need to order this. This is the first 10 issues of the classic all-age series. And what it is is basically it is done in the style of Batman the Animated Series that first year. So this one features Batman going up against, like, the Joker and Penguin and Catwoman and Scarecrow and Killer Croc and Clayface and Riddler. And all, again, in the animated series style with art by Ty Templeton and some other folks written by Kelly Puckett and Martin Pascoe. These comics are beloved. People absolutely adore these things. Uh, the page count is 240 pages. It is full color. Uh, it normally retails for $19.99, but you can get it for 42% off, so it's only $11.59. Batman Adventures Street Paperback Volume 1. Be sure to get that. Now, Luke, uh, just curious, you know, it, it's not a must. It's, you know, all, all the yeah. cool kids do it, but did you yeah. happen to bring an in-stock trades recommendation? Yeah. And, if, and if you didn't, I, I probably won't think less of you. I'm just, you know. Yes, I did, Shag, and I am excited to announce that my in-stock trades book is the 
the Hawkman Companion softcover, which is written by none other than the Firewater Podcast community member and past guest of the show, Doug Zuiza. So this book is a 200-page book. It's black and white, but it is chock full of great Hawkman backstory and interviews with their creators and interviews with the artists. There is so much information packed into this book. Like, you can hardly believe it. This this book was, was great for me before even coming into this podcast. You know, I was able to sit down with this, do research. The Hawkman Companion, the softcover edition, it was $24.95, but it's in stock pr- trades price is $14.49. You save 40% on that. It's, I highly recommend it. It's got a gorgeous cover by Cliff Chang, and the back cover, too, is is a non-traditional comic book, uh, superhero comic book artist, David Peterson. David Peterson does Mouse Guard, mm. and he did a gorgeous piece of Hawkman on the back cover of this thing. So it's a it's a great volume. It's super educational. It's uh, I, I really highly recommend it. And it's Doug. He's, he's one of our own. So go out there, support Doug, buy this book, support in stock trades. Uh, yeah, just get out there. It's a great, great book. And, and if you've never picked up any Tomorrow's books, I, yeah, as you said, we, you will not be disappointed. They are absolutely yeah. wonderful. Doug did Super a great job on this one. So awesome. I'm really yep. glad you suggested that one. Cool. Sure. For these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit instocktrades.com. All right, folks. Well, before we get any further, I'd like to remind you to please, please get on the internets and contribute your thoughts about this episode. We want you to be part of the experience. We want you to be part of the show. Heaven forbid you don't want to just be thinking about me and Luke all the time. We want you to be involved. So please go on the social medias. Use our hashtag poundfwpodcast or tag us. It's JLI Podcast on Twitter, Just Like International Blahaha Podcast on Facebook. And because it's really all about building a community of online JLI fans coming together to celebrate this beloved series. And, uh, yeah, the more the merrier. Amen. Now we get to the part of the show where hopefully uh, Luke won't embarrass himself too much being a newbie. Mm -hmm. Luke, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book and how did you fall in love with it? Oh, well, (laughs) that's an interesting story, Shag. I'd love to tell you that story. You see, a a while back, a friend of mine decided to start a JLI podcast. Oh. Yeah, it was called the JLI Wahaha Podcast. That's Uh, a clever name. Yeah, very clever name. And, you know, he had a couple other podcasts. Podcasts I sort of listen to. I find myself sort of liking the same things that he liked. You know, he he had an affinity for. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's sort of a C-lister, but like Firestorm. Have you heard of Firestorm? I like. See, I like some of those really unpopular characters. I think before Legends of Tomorrow, that guy was like an F-lister. But anyway. <laughs> So he had a, yeah, he had a Firestorm podcast and the original incarnation of the JLI. When I was a kid, it was on shelves and I was too young. You know how like when you're young, you need your superheroes to be totally serious. I was not in that stage. So when I saw the goofiness on the covers as a kid, I just thought, you know what? That looks too weird. That looks too silly. Not for me. I'm, I'm a big grown up now. I'm reading like these. I'm going to read the grown up superhero comic books. So you reached past JLI to pick up that edgy ghostwriter issue probably. You know, Ghost Rider wasn't my thing either. I was sort of a happy medium guy. So anyway. Thanks for um, going with the joke. Way to go. <laughs> you know, this is for entertainment purposes, not about trying what? to make me feel bad. Oh, <laughs> I, I forgot. So, yes, when you started the podcast, I thought, you know what? If Shag likes this, it's very likely I will like this as well. So I just decided to give it a shot. And guess what? I really enjoyed it. Right. It's probably not my favorite incarnation of the Justice League. I'm probably more maybe a satellite era kind of guy. But Luke, you're, you're breaking up. Are what? you going through a tunnel? You're breaking up. What? But the workplace humor is great. The situational humor and the running gags, they, they, t- 
they tap into my love for vaudevillian humor. Mm. Yeah, and what I love even more is that not only does it do the comedy really well and its timing is really well, but it hits it can hit really emotional beats when it needs to. Mm. And and that to me is is really the mark of a, a master at storytelling. So yeah, I. I've really come to love these books. So you started picking them up, obviously, recently. Did you do the trades? Did you do individual issues? How did you do it? I've done it mostly through trades. I picked up issue 25 so that I could be ready. <laughs> right. Perfect. <laughs> so glad you were on the ball there. <laughs> yeah. Trade, yeah. Trades is definitely a good way to go. I mean, beside, whether you do the hard, cover, uh, hard copy trades or uh, the, the big omnibus that just came out or even Comixology. I mean, they are constantly running Justice League sales and the JLI trade paperbacks go for like five or six bucks. You know, it's on digital, which is great. And you get to read it in panel view and everything. Oh, anyway, there's lots of ways to get your hands on these books nowadays, which makes me so happy. They deserve to be out there in people's hands. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, all right. Now that you've exposed yourself to the JLI, and I don't mean in the way you're thinking about with the trench coat on a dark street corner, uh, who is your favorite? Although I did that too. Oh, goodness. Who is your favorite JLI character? Now, if you could try and narrow it down to maybe three or less, uh, most people okay. who come on the show don't seem to know how to count. So we'll see if you knew. Three and or less. Okay. Well, so the difficulty in answering this question is that there are characters from the JLI who I love, but not necessarily from their JLI incarnations. An example of this would be Hawkman. Mm, okay. uh, I love Hawkman, but I, I don't necessarily love him as the stodgy killjoy he's portrayed to be in this comic. Okay. Don't like. Don't get me wrong. He's absolutely hilarious uh, in this issue. I just like him a little bit better outside the JLI. So I, I can see that. Yeah. So specifically to JLI comics, my my quick easy answer is I I'm one of those guys that loves the Booster Gold Blue Beetle combo. Those two those two guys together are are absolutely perfect. I probably have a dash of preference for Blue Beetle. Hmm. Um, yeah, but I, di I discovered both of these guys. I get really nostalgic with my comics. I discovered both of those guys at a general store spinner rack during a childhood camping trip with a friend and his family. My parents had given me money to go out for food, but when I saw that there were comics in this general store, I decided I would rather starve and instead spend my money on comics. <laughs> <laughs> so on that trip, I bought Booster Gold number 21 and Blue Beetle number 17. And uh, I think I also remember picking up Green Lantern Core 217 and, and Batman 412, where our infamous one-punch <laughs> delivering Batman almost gets his ass handed to him by a mime. <laughs> Only in the 80s was a mime dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant issue. I actually really like that issue. You know, as I was thinking about this, I realized I also really like Big Barda. I can't say that I know everything about her or that I even make it a real point to, like, follow her. But um, for the longest time, I thought, oh, Mr. Miracle. I really like Mr. Miracle, like when he shows up in a story. And I think it wasn't until real recently that I realized... I like Mr. Miracle because Big Barda ends up showing up. <laughs> I love her dominant presence. I love her relationship with Mr. Miracle and the way she just towers over him. I love that she's still feminine, yet is able to kick ass, too. Mm -hmm. Plus, her, her Jack Kirby costume design is really amazing. I love it. I love that helmet. It's so good. It's awesome. And and their relationship, too, is, like, believable. You know, they're, yeah. they're a little bit of opposites, but you just see the genuine love between the characters. I completely buy it with these two. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely all the time. Yeah. So uh, a couple follow-ups here. First off, I'd like to say thank you for proving that artists can't count because you just named four characters. But, because I just you know, said keep it to three. But uh, you... I did! Hawkman, 
Blue Beetle, oh, but I said Booster Gold. Outside. Yeah, uh huh. Okay, <laughs> right, uh huh. Anyway, Fine. so you do these amazing, um, I want to say you call them character profiles. Is that what you call them? Yes. Uh, is, that, is that the term? Am I getting it right? I do the DC superhero profiles. That's it, okay. There's these, yep. there's these beautiful art pieces that Luke does, uh, where it's a drawing of the character and it's surrounded by like the iconography that surrounds that character. Now, how many of the JLI people have you done? Because I know you've done some of them. Hmm, that's a good question. Martian Manhunter, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle. You know, I, Mr. Miracle and Barda are on my list. They're on the short list of mm. people that I need to do. I haven't done Fire or Ice, too. They would they would be kind of neat. Have you, um, have you done Batman? Yes, Batman okay. has been done. Okay. I have not done Nort. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> You can because eventually, you know, the the end of the at the end of the day, I need to sell these. Right. <laughs> well, have, you, are, have you done? Have you done Captain Marvel? You know, he's a he's a glaring omission too, and so is so is Guy. <gasps> you haven't done Guy Gardner, okay? I know I haven't. There's a lot that I have to do yet. Well, I, I, I realized. Have you done Black Canary? Yes. Okay, I've and done I'm, Black Canary. I know for a fact you've done Doctor Fate. Yes. I've done Dr. Fate as well. I think you even uh, brought on a, a special consultant for that one. So uh, that was very clever and insightful in, in, in his comments. So, yeah. I uh, can't remember who that was, though. I, I do know that I just dislocated my shoulder, patting myself on the back. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, folks, if you get a chance to see Luke uh, at one of the shows he's at, uh, you can definitely see these uh, superhero profiles that he's done. They're gorgeous. Are, are they online anywhere, too? Yeah. Yeah, you can find them on my personal website, DobCreative.com. Even if you just search Luke Dob superhero profile on Google, they'll show up. So get on the Googles, folks, and look those things up. They're really cool. It's 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 a little bit different than some of the stuff you draw. So it's not always necessarily indicative of the exactly what you draw. But yeah, oh, you did elongated man too, and he's going to be part of Justly Europe. So it's so cool. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So cool. Yeah, they tap more into my my graphic design training. Yeah. It's almost like like a, a way you could think of it is is it's like a representative logo of each character. Okay, I could see that. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> 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 Thank you for mocking me openly in front of all my friends. Appreciate yeah. that. That's why I... Hi, hi, Shags, one friend. <laughs> hate you so much. <laughs> and your damn hair. All right. <clears throat> anyway, so folks, before uh, I start to weep from this pain and sorrow that Luke is heaping upon me, I'm going to go on to our next segment, which I like to call... Monitor Duty. <laughs> you said duty. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for bringing up the maturity of the podcast. That's wonderful. Happy to help. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, in this segment, we do cover other comics that are on the shelves featuring the JLI members in the same month. So uh, this issue of Justice League International, number 20, was on the shelves August 16th, 1988. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. But, uh, folks, I hope you enjoy this segment because it's going away very soon. Once we start to cover JLA or JLI, join JLA, however you want to say, because the name changes, issue 25 forward, we're going to lose the Monitor Duty segment. So, Oh, no. Yeah, enjoy it while it's here, folks. we gotta, we got to cut some things in order to make the episode short enough that I can cover two issues at each episode. And I actually asked for feedback from the audience last time, uh, or an episode two ago, and they were wonderful with the amount of feedback they gave. All right, Luke, why don't you tell us about the first comic that we're going to cover that came out in August 1988 featuring other members of the JLA. All right, the first comic we're looking at here is Cosmic Odyssey, number two, by Jim Starlin and Mike Mignola. The epic continues, featuring Batman and Martian Manhunter. This was recently covered on the DC OCD from our buddies Paul and Mike from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Uh, and here's my personal note on this. I bought this from a Walden Books. I don't know if you remember Walden Books. Absolutely. In our local mall. Well, I don't um, remember was, your local mall, but I remember Walden Books. Walden Books was one of the few locations in town that actually had a spinner rack. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember picking this up because the cover was absolutely stunning. The art was gorgeous on the inside. Mignola was just top of his game. It's so good. Uh, it contains a host full of characters I'd never seen before. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I completely disliked John Stewart for years after reading this issue. Oh uh, well, yeah, it's understandable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, unfair, okay. but understandable. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I did not read Cosmic Odyssey first run. I read it in trade uh, format later and kind of kick myself for missing it when it came around. I finally read the whole thing in full. I think it was last year I bought the trade from InStockTrades.com. <laughs> and I and I loved it. It's so good. It's beautiful. Awesome. Well, uh, also out the same month was Secret Origins number 33. And this kicks off the, ser- the three-issue run where they covered Justice League International characters. Woohoo! So they covered Mr. Miracle by Mike Carlin and Don Heck. Fire by Tom and Mary Beerbaum with art by Chuck Austin and Ice by Gerard Jones and Jim Valentino. Now, we are not covering these issues here on the JLI podcast. It seems like it would make sense, but we are trying to hone in on the Giffen DiMatteis issues, and they didn't really have much to do with any of these Secret Origins issues, but they're definitely worth your time. Check them out. And you definitely listen to the podcast. There's a Secret Origins podcast. It's, it's finished now. They've done the whole run. But it's still available as part of the Firewater Podcast Network, the Secret Origins podcast, with Ryan Daly, who hosted it, past guest of the show. And they covered all three of these issues. So Secret Origins number 33, look for that episode of the podcast. It's great. They did a great job covering it. Yeah, Ryan did a great job. Yep. Uh, the next is Batman number 426 by Jim Starlin and Jim Aparo, A Death in the Family, part one. <gasps> oh, my goodness. This is the first trade I own, Shag. Well, what, you death. know what? It may be the first trade I ever owned, too, now I think about it. We, oh, really? Well, it was kind of, if you were young enough, it was kind of issued to you, like when it was published, because they did, it was one of the fir- earliest trades I can remember, because they, they printed the four issues, and the trade came out almost immediately, and that never happened back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this from my parents, which kind of surprises me to think about now, because they were usually pretty protective. And here's, <laughs> here's, here's Robin getting beaten to death by a crowbar. Exactly. Here, little Luke, here's a story about a kid your age dying horribly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spoilers. I for, for the life of me, you know, I wouldn't. When I was a kid, I didn't quite understand, like, the the loathing for Jason Todd. So when this came out, I I was, like, beside myself. Why would you want to kill Robin? This is horrible. But Mm. I didn't know. Well, for a more specific answer on that, folks, please, uh, if if you'd like to understand who voted for murdering Jason Todd, (laughs) please reach out to Rob (laughs) Kelly, uh, my podcasting life partner, who, in fact, did call and pay money to kill Jason Todd. (laughs) And uh, as I understand uh, it, I think he asked for a <laughs> refund when they brought him back from the dead. But anyway. <laughs> also at that month was Batman the Cult number four, again by Jim Starlin and by Bernie Wrightson. Oh, and uh, this, is the, this is the final issue in that miniseries where Batman, his battle with Deacon uh, Blackfire does conclude. I want to say this is the first Batman miniseries I ever got. Like, I, I was aware peripherally of Batman uh, Dark Knight Returns. I don't think I got it till the next year. In Batman Year One, I think I got the next year. But, okay. um, but this one, I was like, well, I know the other ones were really big, and this one's going to be just as big. So I have to buy this because I'll get rich and pay my way through college, you know, or whatever. And I bought yeah. it, and I, I, wow, I mean, just burning freaking rights in, you know? Yeah. Oh, my gosh, it blew my mind. So it was amazing. So good. Also at that month is Detective Comics number 592 by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Norm freaking Brayfogle. In that one, <laughs> um, Batman, Batman battles a rash of fear murders in Gotham, and in the cover depicts uh, a murderous Abraham Lincoln, which is a little odd. Uh, <laughs> for, more, for more on Batman during this era, please check out our network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Ryan Daly. Both past guests of this show. Up next, Captain Adam, number 21, by Carrie Bates, Greg Wiseman, and Pat Broderick. Woo! 
Captain Adam takes a job as a soldier for hire and meets up with Plastique in Central America. Yeah, I, I, this is one of the issues of Captain Adam I actually bought off the shelf. Oh, I, really? Well, because I was, you know, a big Firestorm guy, and I, I here I look, I'm like, oh, look, it's Pat Broderick drawing Plastique. Oh, my gosh! So uh, I actually picked this one up, and I, did, I had no idea what the hell was going on. Uh, I barely knew Captain Adam was at this point, but, hey, I was there. <laughs> I was there. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I felt with most comics as a kid. I never knew what was going on. Collecting anything in, in sequence was, like, out of the question. Well, absolutely, yeah. As Michael Bailey loves to say, if you went to the spinner one week and an issue was sold out it just like never existed for like five years yeah like, you never saw it again yeah, just, i was constantly confused <laughs> although for probably more reasons than that right. <laughs> but we got through it we didn't have wikipedia to fill in the holes for us and we still got through it so i mean we did you just fill in the you fill in the gaps yourself exactly so heck my one of my first you know really deep dives into dc comics was crisis on infinite earth number seven for goodness sakes and oh, wow yeah and i made it through that so yeah all right, also on the shelves, and this one's important to you JLI fans, folks, Captain Adam Annual Number 2 by Carrie Bates, Greg Weissman, and Paris Collins. Woohoo, Paris Collins, love him. Uh, in this one, the country of Bialya, oh, you've heard of them, folks. Bialya mm-hmm. begins a marketing campaign designed to attract tourists. And Captain Adam investigates along with Dimitri, the Rocket Red. Uh, this one is a <laughs> must for JLI fans following the, following the Bialya story. It really, really is. Uh, I've oh. only read it recently, uh, within the last year, actually, myself. I didn't even know it existed until some of the listeners directed me towards it. It's a great issue, and it really pushes the Queen Bee and Bialya forward. It's a must. It really is, folks. And for more on Captain Adam, please check out Jay Jones's coverage over on the Silver and Gold podcast, uh, also on his Splitting Adams blog, and of course, Jay is a past guest of the show. Now, looking into the future at the horizon. The future! We're, uh, <laughs> we're, we're looking towards Justice League <laughs> Europe, which is right around the corner. So I want to take a moment to, to mention a couple of characters out there that are, have books in the shelves. Animal Man. Animal Man! Mm. Uh, issue number four was on the shelves by Grant Morrison and Chaz Truog. Now, if you remember your Animal Man history, it was supposed to yes. be a four-issue miniseries, and it was but so... But it wasn't. It, but it wasn't exactly right, Luke Dobb. It was so <laughs> amazing that it knocked everyone's socks off, so they immediately commissioned it to full series. So this one really concludes as a four-part story that Grant Morrison had written to set it all up. And so it really kind of wraps up the first story arc. It's fantastic. And, and, and again, became an ongoing series because it was amazing. So, so good. <laughs> uh, also out, coming out, was Flash number 19 by William Messner Loeb's and Jim Mooney. The rogues throw a party and invite Wally West as a joke. But Wally actually shows up for the party. <laughs> Did you read this? I don't. I, I didn't read this. this. This sounds perfect, though. I read it, but it's probably been 20-plus years since I've read it, so I can only remember the cover. Uh, this sounds like fun. Oh, yeah. It sounds like a Justice League animated series episode. I could see that happening. It does it. a little bit, doesn't it? Bill Messner Loeb's run on Flash is really underrated. It, it's, it, uh, it deserves more praise than it gets. Uh, my first hmm. Flash issues were actually, well, my first ongoing Flash collecting was a Bill Messner Loeb's uh, run. It was in the late 40s of the issue, so about 20 more later than this, but his run of Flash was great. Very entertaining stuff. Really enjoyed it. Oh, so. cool. And then finally, we're going to wrap up with Power of the Atom number five by Roger Stern and Dwayne T- uh, Turner. In this one, uh, Ray Palmer, the Atom, he has questions because his secret identity has been made public, and he's trying to figure out how to cope with that, so he contacts elongated man Ralph Dibney, also public identity, for assistance. And the issue also features cameos by Maxwell Lord, Oberon, and Sue Dibney. 
Awesome, man. Power the mm-hmm. atom. Good stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Comics Are on the Shelves at the same time. We're going to take a quick podcast promo break, guys. And when we come back, we are going to cover Justice League International number 20. Evolution is a constant, even for the world's greatest superheroes. Founding members have departed. New members have stepped in to fill the ranks, and their final memories of Happy Harbor are of a stunning betrayal and the loss of their secret sanctuary. But there is only one place to go for the Justice League of America, as they march into the Bronze Age of Comics, straight up! More precisely, 22,300 miles up above the Earth. Welcome to a bold new era for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast. Your host, Mike Peacock, invites you to make yourself comfortable for over 100 issues and their very first annual with the League as they enter the much-beloved satellite era. Here's a brief sampling of the thrills and chills that await your podcast catcher. A veritable who's who of new members, such as the Elongated Man, Red Tornado, Zatanna, and Firestorm. Surprise membership returns. More epic team-ups with the Justice Society of America, along with appearances by the Legion of Superheroes, the All-Star Squadron, the New Gods, and even a combination of the DC Universe's greatest heroes of history. A galaxy of superstar writers such as Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Steve Englehart, and Jerry Conway. The longest artistic run in the book's history by the astonishing Dick Dillon, along with contributions by Neil Adams, Don Heck, George Tusca, Rich Buckler, and George Perez. All this and more surprises and excitement await you in this new phase of Justice's First Dawn. Come along with Television's Era Certified Super Friends at classicjla.podbean.com or subscribe to the show via iTunes. Oh yeah, and there's the debut of Ultra. Yay! Hi, John! Hi, Maggie! I'm still wrapping my brain around the fact that we're married! <laughs> Me too, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Aww. Oh, hey, I was looking at these old comics, and I noticed that there's Hold a Hold that thought. Why don't we talk about it on our podcast? We have a podcast? It seems like the logical next step. We get married, we change our names, we combine our comic collections, we start a podcast about comic books. Well, I can't fault your logic, but there are plenty of podcasts out there already. Do you really think we'll have anything new and interesting to say? Oh, I think we'll manage. Welcome to the Married with Comics podcast, where we constantly f*** up. <laughs> it goes from Marvel Girl to Phoenix to Marvel Girl to Jean Grey to Phoenix to Dead. Um, and then apparently he's so consumed with his own thoughts that he runs right past three monkeys. <laughs> a brainwave camera took a picture of that guy's head. A brainwave camera. Uh- and Ben's just basically, whatever you gotta do to stop the commies, Nick. So join us at the Married with Comics podcast, where two newlyweds with a love for comics intelligently, critically, and thoughtfully discuss comic books. Also listen as we goof around, make jokes, and make fun of John for mispronouncing names. I do that a lot. Sometimes we'll pick a topic and review and discuss comics that relate to the topic. And sometimes we'll pick up a comic and see what discussion topics come up. Sometimes we'll spend an entire episode talking about how much Maggie loves Batman. 
The only thing that's almost as strong as my love for you is my love for Batman. The Married with Comics podcast. Available directly on our site at marywcomics.lipson.com, on iTunes, and wherever good podcasts are found. Also, check us out at Facebook at the Married with Comics podcast. We've got everything you need. Alright folks, we are back and we are ready to talk about Justice League International number 20. Awesome! Remember, you can go to our website, firewaterpodcast.com. You can go out there and check out our image gallery. If for some reason you don't have your copy of Justice League International number 20 handy, maybe you hid it under your mattress because it's got Big Barda in it and you didn't want your mom to find it and now you've lost hmm. it. I don't know what your situation is, folks. And really, please keep it to yourself. I don't need to know. That's just, that's a private time thing. Anyway, uh, if, you, if you need to, <laughs> if you need to see images of this book, go out to our website. We will post some of the relevant pictures from it that we talk about and you'll get to just absolutely love the Ty Templeton artwork. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Actually, here I am going to mention something real quick. The trades, interesting enough, because you know I've got the real issue here, and I've got uh-huh. the trade, and the, the digital trades, and the real trades, and I, it looks like, sadly, for the digital trades that I'm looking at, it looks like they shot the artwork from a, not the original artwork, but shot it from like you know a comic. So like in the trade, the the quality of the line work isn't as clean as as it is in the actual issue. So folks, if you get the chance, I recommend you go find the actual issue as well, just so you can really appreciate Titan. Are you talking about the original trade though? Because I'm looking at the paperback and the lines look really clear. Okay, well, I, I'm the digital trade uh, is the one I, I read. I read the digital one and oh, the you're looking at the digital trade in preparation. Yeah, so uh, oh, that, okay, those are the two I was really spent my time with in preparation for this. So at least the one I got off Comicsology, the line work looked like it was shot huh. from from a comic rather than original art, uh, and that's uh, that's probably what I'm going to use also to post on the image gallery. So if you see the line work and you go, eh, it's a little fuzzy, well, go get the real issue. You'll see how crisp it is. Yeah, and it looks good in the paperback trade. There you go. I'll verify that. Perfect. Verified. It's got the little blue check mark. Verified by me. (laughs) And apparently Sean Connery out of the blue. So, again, Just League International number 20 from DC Comics, cover dated December 1988. Cover price is only 75 cents, three shiny quarters. And cover is by Ty Templeton. And he signed it, Ty the Guy. I love it. Why don't you tell us about the cover, Luke Dobb? Sure. Okay, so this cover features Granny Goodness in the far foreground, peering over her shoulder in a dark hallway. Now, behind here, up a short flight of stairs stands Manga Khan and his <laughs> android henchman, Hein Nine. Khan's hand is outstretched towards Granny, and he speaks through a word balloon appearing over his left hand shoulder. Granny goodness, have I got a deal for you? For just behind him, held aloft like a wet noodle by Hein Nine, is the limp body of Mr. Miracle, adorned with a sign reading, For Sale. Wow. Congratulations, yeah. Luke. This was actually a, a backdoor interview, folks, to see if Luke could describe every cover of all of our comics going forward on the show. So you got the job. I take it. <laughs> I love this cover. It's it's yeah. great. It's funny. You know, back when I was of the younger stock and I wasn't into funny comics as well, I probably would have turned my nose up at this. But now, knowing MangaCon uh, and loving the style of the book, I think it's hysterical. I love it. I mean, the robot's hand is even covering the logo some. You know, the word balloons even got little <laughs> weird brackety things in there because you know, his robotic-ish body for Manga Khan. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a great use of foreground, great use of background, great use of breaking. Uh, I always like it when art breaks the border. And uh, with Hein 
Stein's hand coming up over in front of the Justice League logo, holding Mr. Miracle there. I, I love that kind of stuff. So good composition, nice balance. You know, in terms of like excitement value, I don't feel like it has a, a ton of like, you know, it's not super dynamic necessarily, but it's a, it's a great composition nonetheless. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've been waiting for many, many issues for them to get to Apocalypse. So this cover, you know, is sort of announcing it's finally here. We're going to Apocalypse. Granny goodness. And you yeah. know, we should mention like Granny Go- goodness's face looks fantastic. The line work is really, really, really beautiful on this cover. In fact, I'm just based on this cover alone. I'm wondering if I would love Ty Templeton work inked by himself even more than when he's inked by somebody else. Uh, cause the, mm. ink, the inking here, especially on Granny goodness is just beautiful. She looks great. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she's not beautiful. Don't get me wrong. It's Granny goodness, but the line work is beautiful. I don't know. There's all kinds of beauty shag. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it looks like my cover is, oh gosh, so it's marred in some way here. Across Granny Goodness's white hair, uh, there's what? writing. What is this? That's, writing. What? Oh, writing? Oh, oh, it's Ty What's Templeton's up? signature. What? From when I met him at Heroes Con last year. Oh my goodness. What? No, no. Yes. You have a signed Ty Templeton cover? You were only like you? four booths down. You could have came over and joined me. You were there. I was, I was busy. I was That's true. cranking out commissions. That's amazing. I'm super jealous of that, actually. Well, I, and I have to thank Ryan Daly, because he's the one who put the bug in my ear going, dude, you should get some JLI signed, and he helped me find some issues. So thank uh-huh. you, Ryan Daly, for that. Uh, he's not listening to the show anyway. He gave up after his first appearance. He never showed up again, so he won't even right. know. But uh, yeah, so as well I. Super nice guy. If you get a chance to meet Ty Templeton, folks, <laughs> go meet him. He is wonderful. He's a lovely man. He's a good chatter. He's got good stories. And uh, he's, it was awesome. So That's awesome. All right. Cool. Let's Lucky get, you. Let's get into this issue, folks. Uh, plot okay. and breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Pencils by Ty Templeton. Woohoo! Welcome, Ty Templeton! Uh, inker, Joe Robenstein. Uh, letter, Bob LaPan. Colorist, Gene D'Angelo. And editor, Andy Helfer. And the name of the issue is, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Apocalypse. Which I don't, I don't know if kids would get that reference nowadays. I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, actually, maybe I don't know the reference. I know it was like old, uh, when you went on tours of Europe, it's like, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. It was, that, I think that was probably a film title too. Hmm. Maybe hmm, I don't know. That's even a good question. Reference. Yeah. Cause I don't know the reference either. I, I like it though. I like the title. <laughs> if it's referencing something, it's above our heads, but it still works. Well, that's what, that's what's brilliant about it. <laughs> Well, so, uh, tell you what, for those of you at home who are smarter than us and do know the whole history of the If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, which, again, I believe all ties back to, you know, taking a whirlwind tour of Europe on a bus or something. But uh, if there's actually a specific yeah. movie or something, let us know in the comments, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. All right, Luke, why don't you take us through the first half of this issue? All right. The first half of this issue. Our story opens on a formal meeting between Apocalypse's own Dr. Vermin Vanderbar <laughs> and none other than Manga Khan. <laughs> In hopes of securing a 27-year sought-after trade agreement relationship with Apocalypse, Manga makes a very special offering. Mr. Miracle, the High Father's son, the man, Scott Free. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Dr. Wunderbar fetches Granny Goodness while Manga calls Elrond with the good news. During the call, the two question the success of Lobo's mission and the reappearance of the Justice League's spaceship. Granny Goodness enters and Manga Khan makes his offer of trade, scot-free for Apocalypse's boom tube technology. Dr. Vermin expresses that no such trade will ever take place, but Manga thinks otherwise. 
Meanwhile, in the slums of Apocalypse, Armageddon, to be precise, Big Barda, Martian Manhunter, Dimitri, and everyone's favorite Muppet, Nort, find themselves <laughs> in the presence of the lowlies. They enlist their help, but not before Rocket Red receives a new suit to replace the one damaged in their fight with Lobo. He is now the proud owner of Apocalyptean armor, stronger than the silly thing he was wearing, <gasps> as Barda describes, but also fairly primitive. Suffice it to say, it's an upgrade albeit a small one. Nort is unhappy because everyone is yelling at him. We cut back to Manga Khan awaiting Darkseid's answer. Darkseid isn't available to make the trade himself, so Dr. Vermin Wunderbar has left a message on his answering machine. Classy, Darkseid. Classy. <laughs> Manga contemplates consuming a hot drink and pastries while Vermin and Granny have a brief chat about honor, of which they are both sorely lacking. The scene changes and we find ourselves once again outside the high walls of Granny's Orphanage. The rescue mission for Mr. Miracle is underway. Our heroes eliminate the security guards with a quick quack and a shocking bonk. <laughs> John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, shapeshifts into the form of one of the guards and just like that, they're in. But as Varda assured them earlier, getting in is the easy part. It's getting out again. That's going to be tough. All right, well, I'll take it from here. Uh, unfortunately for our heroes in disguise, Granny's security monitoring lackeys detect the presence of Big Barda and her three teammates. Now, there's some funny interplay here between the security guards uh, named Waffles and... Waffles. And, oh, it gets better, Valedictorer. <laughs> Valedictera. I will never grow tired of saying that uh -huh. name. So this leads to the, the brown-nosing Valedictera. <laughs> he gets into a situation uh, with Granny Goodness, a situation that rhymes with shoot the messenger. So, <laughs> sorry, Valedictera. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I Googled it because I was thought, this has got to be a Jack Kirby name. It's so good. It's not. It only appears here. So. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So uh, Megacon is then imprisoned by Dr. Wunderbar for allowing himself to be followed by the heroes. And uh, we're then treated to this full-page splash of parademons descending towards uh, a, a building. Okay, it's not the most exciting of full-page uh, splash, but it's still beautifully rendered. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, inside, <laughs> Big Barda has taken the lead of our heroes, when suddenly they are ambushed by Granny's guards. Nort uses his green energy constructs to protect our heroes and slam around some of the parademons. Meanwhile, Dimitri decides to test out his new armor, discovering the armor's power blasts are powerful enough to knock him back and through the wall of the building. <laughs> Barda visits the armory, stocking up with her new mega rod and a mini cannon. Martian Manhunter then orders Barda to boom tube her way back to Earth to gather more JLI help. Otherwise, Jean is, uh, is afraid that they aren't going to be getting out of this one alive. Barda initially refuses to leave Apocalypse because she doesn't want to abandon her husband, but finally she concedes to the Martian Manhunter's pleas. Uh, meanwhile, Lord Mangakon is under house arrest. In retaliation, he orders Elrond to declare war on Apocalypse! <laughs> Not exactly a very healthy strategy. Uh, then Mangakon actually removes his headpiece from his armor, and it's revealed that his true form is actually an energy being that's just inhabiting the Mangakon armor. Uh, Mangakon has, uh, then tells us he has a mysterious mis uh, mission of his own to perform. So, <laughs> foreshadowing for next issue. So, uh, back on Earth at the JLI Embassy, Guy Gardner and Lobo are now, remember, Lobo's part of the team right now because of last issue. Uh, so Guy Gardner and Lobo are locked in an arm wrestling competition. While Blue Beetle calls out Hawkman for his non-stop complaining about the JLI in comparison to his beloved classic <laughs> Justice League. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Rob Kelly. 
Anyway, uh, <laughs> Hawkman, <laughs> Hawkman's complaining provides some good humor and some good joke mileage between Booster Gold and Oberon, and also uh, between the rear ends of Fire and Hawkwoman. Yeah, seriously. Mm. The ladies have a conversation Well, all we can see are their butts. It's kind of weird. Um, the lascivious pig in me isn't exactly complaining about the drawing, but yeah, you can't help notice how, that the ladies aren't really being represented very fairly there. Uh, they're all interrupted by a sudden appearance of a boom tube, and uh, Big Barda, she shouts, There's no time to explain. We need your help, and we need it now! And then, boom! Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Batman, Lobo, Oberon, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, Fire, Ice, all of them find themselves now on Apocalypse, and they're there to join the fight against the Parademons. Next issue, Apocalypse Wow. Wow. What an issue. What an issue. (laughs) A fantastic issue. It was. I'm glad I I read the right issue. Well, eventually, yeah, yeah. Eventually. (laughs) So what did you think of the issue, buddy? This is a brilliant issue. It has a little bit of everything in here. So right away, like the vaudevillian humor in this is just perfect. The interchange at the very beginning, the interchange between Mangacon and Vermin is practically like a who's on first sketch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they're talking about you. Know, what's your name? My, my name is Vermin. Vermin Bunderbar. What, you know, however that went down exactly. It's it, it's terribly funny. They make a fantastic double act. They really, really do. And, yeah. you know, it, when in all, what they're really doing doing is having a discussion about trade negotiations. And as George Lucas proved, those are always fascinating. But They're really fascinating. But these guys made it work. So good on them. <laughs> so there's so much... The, the other comment I wrote down here is that there's so much humor played out by the rhythm and timing of the spoken words hmm. that it makes me wonder about about Giffen and DiMatteis' writing process for the book. Like, did they... What I want to know is, like, did they write the words first on, like, on paper, using a typewriter or whatever, or did they did they speak it aloud into a recording device? Because mm. it, it, there's so much of this that is contingent on timing and hitting these beats uh, that sometimes... Like, I would find myself having to read these sometimes twice to because I knew that there was a, a, a timing that these guys wanted to hit yeah. with the dialogue. Uh, but it makes me... It, it made me wonder how they... What their writing process was was for that. I know? can actually answer that for you. Uh, Please do. J.M.D. Mateus was kind enough to come on the show and talk about this uh, previously. And w- the way it would work is uh, Giffen would do the plot, okay? So he would okay. do a rough plot, and the way he would do it, he wouldn't even type it up. He would draw a little mini-comic of the plot, and it would also contain the breakdowns. That would go to Kevin McGuire. Kevin McGuire would turn that into finished pencils, uh, and and D. Mateus would also get it, and, and D. Mateus would write the script. So the scripting was all by D. Mateus. All the jokes, the, the, the funny sharp dialogue really came from Demetrius, and mm-hmm. now he didn't mention anything about saying it out loud but you're right there isn't like a, there's a pattern there's a, it, a call it's and response. it's really well done and very theatrical and it's amazing it's, if you look at the, his body of work it's not all comedy he does a bunch of serious stuff he does a bunch of really deep thought stuff too so the yeah. fact that he can master comedy that well it's just yeah now obviously it's a, it's it's a mix of all three of them which is what made it work and in this case it wouldn't have been uh mcguire it would be templeton by this point but it just uh yeah it, it's like magic it really is yeah no it's great it's really really well done i i love the comedic timing throughout this this whole book is is just riddled with great jokes so yeah the other thing that i that i noticed throughout this book is I don't know if Ty Templeton has a crush on Big Barda <laughs> or not, but she is drawn absolutely beautiful throughout this entire book. The top right panel on page eight, the lower right panel on page 10, 
the bottom half of page 22 and the lower left page 22. Like when he zooms in on her face, it's really rendered very, very beautifully. Like I, I kept finding myself just stopping on those go, wow. You know, it's, it, I felt like he was putting extra attention into it. Like, oh, and now a little something for me. <laughs> It could be. I mean, she is gorgeous, and he does have her in poses that are not sexually provocative, and yet still find a way to show off how statuesque and sexy she is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not lewd. It's just beautifully rendered. Yeah, exactly. I would agree. She's totally a badass, too. I mean, you know, where she she takes control of the team. She almost becomes a leader, and John even makes a joke about it. He says, Oh, yeah. He says something like, you know, I remember when I used to lead this team. And we even talked about this in a previous episode, how it's like, I almost kind of wish Barta did become either a team leader or a co-team leader of this book for a while during during this era, because she would have been great. She would have been a great leader. Fantastic. Yeah, and I I could see she kind of has one of those, just those presences that I think people would just, nat- like, in this issue, they naturally fall in line behind her. I, I think she would have had no trouble stepping up into that role. Yeah, I agree. That would have been fun. In that moment where her, where John is trying to get her to go back to Earth and she's refusing to abandon uh, a sky, and he orders her, he's like, you know, you can see the pleading in his eyes. I mean, he's he looks like he's on the edge of tears there on page, uh, page 18, the bottom right-hand corner, where he's, you know, he's insisting she goes. He's like, I order you, now do as I say! And then real tiny words, please. You know, because <laughs> Please. You know, it's a powerful moment, and it's good for it's a good moment for her. It's a good moment for him. That's really well done. Now, how did you read that? That's funny you, you bring that up because I I really like that panel too. And when I read it, I couldn't tell if the please was like a real somber please or if it was a joking please. Like please. Um, I saw it as like an apology. Don't kill me because you know ah. he because he, he he literally says here he goes if we don't get help, Scott's as good as dead. We're all as good as dead. Now do as I say. And then he probably realizes, oh my gosh, this woman could squash me like a bug, even if I am Marshman Hunter, it's Big Bardo, you know, and so that's where I get the please, you know, it's, yeah, now, yeah, that's kind of how I read it. Too, it could have also been an emotional please of just like, please, I, I want to help our friends. I want everyone to live. It could have been that too. Yeah. yeah. Almost exasperated. No, but yeah, with as much comedy as this book has, I think I, I read it with a little bit of like, please. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, here's my next note. This is the 12-year-old and me talking, but I uh, I laugh every time I hear Bart mention Mega Rod. <laughs> so you What's like wrong uh, with you me? like the handling you like the handling of the Mega Rods, what you're telling me. <laughs> yep, yep. I totally turn into a complete immature jackass whenever that comes up. <laughs> Uh, this, so this issue didn't really start picking up for me until about page 12. There were, there were funny bits in the front, you know, with some of the dialogue and the timing, but we were mostly getting characters from, it felt like we were getting characters from point A to point B. Hmm. Okay. Well, I, yeah. for me, it kicked off mm-hmm. great with the, with the MangaCon and, and Wunderbar. I loved it from the start, but I get what you mean. I mean, a lot of the JLI issues are not about conflict, uh, or sorry, physical conflict. A lot of it is, you know, talking conflict. You know, conversational conflict, and it is about moving characters from one place to the next to the next scene. So I can see why you might feel that way. But I, I personally love this one just because I got a little bit of everything. You know, we got the action, we got the fighting, we got the talking, we got the banter. We got. I feel like we got the whole gamut in this one. So I'm, I was. Well, we did. Yeah, we totally did. One. We, we totally did. It, 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 it started out with uh, a negotiation. It went to a phone call, <laughs> <laughs> and then, it, and then it goes to another negotiation. Yeah, it felt like they were. It wasn't bad. They were all funny, but uh, it, it wasn't until we got to about the halfway point when they start sneaking in the building. I was like, whoa, this is really going at a great pace now. Okay. Well, yeah. hey, you know what? Everyone's opinion is different. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Yours happens to be wrong, and that's fine. Um, I understand. Okay. Uh, so why is there a guy named Waffles? Is this <laughs> Teen Titans Go? 
And why is her guy named Valedictorer? <laughs> Valedictorer. Valedictorer I can see existing on Apocalypse. That's that's terrifying. It's yes. terrifying. But waffles? Waffles are sweet. They're syrupy. You like waffles. Why is, why is waffles on Apocalypse? Maybe it's an insult. Maybe that's not really his name. That's just what they mock this guy because, you know, waffles, you, waffles would be something on Apocalypse to be made fun of. Do you think they even know what waffles are on Apocalypse? Do they have pancakes? Do they have syrup? What do they have for breakfast on Apocalypse? I like to think that Belgian waffles are a universal constant, so it's kind of in my book. Belgium, man. Uh, I had a pretty... If it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. See, it all comes back together. Hey, you're right. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Okay, so I had a pretty sheltered childhood. So the first few times I encountered superheroes swearing in comics, I was shocked. Okay. Like the the comics that I'd mentioned earlier when I was reading like the Green Lantern Corps on this camping trip, I remember one of the superheroes said, "Damn." <gasps> and I know, and I was I was beside myself. I thought, "What the heck am I reading here? Superheroes don't swear." Okay. So, that leads me to the absolute wonderful section with Hawkman's response to Beetle using the word hell. <laughs> Cuz not only does he sound like a complete fuddy duddy, but it, it's not even top tier you're swearing. <laughs> That's you know true. I mean? That's true. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Hawkman yeah. is a interesting character throughout all and throughout the JLI run. He is, as you mentioned earlier in your, your your discussion of me, he's very different than necessarily people might know Hawkman. But I love this version of Hawkman. I think he's just, especially the double act of him and Hawkwoman together is what really makes it work. They're hysterical together. They do counter each other really nicely in this comic. I will give you that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you mentioned the swear word. For me, the first time, the first, uh, similar memory of like one of my heroes cursing, then I was like, oh, what was uh, Han Solo? on the Tauntaun in uh, Empire Strikes Back and he's like I'll see you in hell and I remember thinking (laughs) oh my gosh he's a bad boy that Han Solo guy he's a a nerf herder it's not that he shot Greedo no that was okay (laughs) yeah that's fine killing a man is fine (laughs) (laughs) let's get our priorities straight I was a boy in the 70s I mean come on we understand how this works (laughs) so uh, let's talk a little more about Hawkman so they, they draw a direct line comparison between him being a Republican which even back in the early 80s was a charged uh, topic. Nowadays, it's even more charged. We're not here to talk about politics, guys, okay? But uh, the whole idea of him being a, a stuffy conservative was very much being played up here, where he's like, you know, my day back in the jail, Justice League was better than this. And, and back in my day. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oberon's had it. He didn't want this crap anymore. Booster Gold keeps making excuses for Hawkman, but Beetle actually calls out Hawkman on his crap, which is great. Yeah. I like that. And uh, Beetle does not stand for it. Right. But, I, I again, Hawkwoman uh, brings the better counterpart because again, they, you know, they're complaining. You know, Hawk, Hawkman's basically showing his ass is basically what he's doing, and then we get a literal panel of Hawkwoman's ass, and, and she's saying, you know, about how they don't have Republicans on Thanagar, but that's a good way to put it to describe her husband. A funny, funny shtick, really is really good. Yeah, yeah, it's a terrific shtick. Um, yeah, the last note that I had was, you know, I saw your note about the the panel <laughs> with Hawkwoman. And uh, and fire yep. in the perspective that that was drawn from, and I, you know, I I have a very male response to female anatomy, yes. right? Okay, hot girl cuts a nice figure, but on the one hand, I look at this butt panel and I think, whoa, butts. But on the other hand, I don't think it was drawn. I don't think it was drawn in a lewd fashion. No, it's not. As an artist, I ask, or, or overly sexualized or anything. I ask myself, you know, as an artist, I ask these myself these questions because when I'm drawing.
drawing female characters, I want to make sure I'm drawing them in a, in a way that's respectful and, but, you know, but still attractive, still sexy, but not like overly, like, I feel like there's at some point there's the line you cross. Mm -hmm. Um, but I ask, are these, are are these characters being sexualized? I don't know in this panel. I, I can't show these characters in these suits from this perspective without raising that question. You can't draw a female superhero from behind without staring at her behind. Mm. And as, as their posture, their stances aren't overly sexualized or even overtly sexy. They're just standing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I continue to ask myself, should they, you know, should Templeton have drawn another character there instead or Oberon or so, so then I ask myself, if you can't even position these characters with their backs to the audience without asking these questions, then perhaps the whole notion of characters in spandex is flawed. Um, <laughs> But at that point, then I realize I'm asking too many questions, and I'm probably being far too oversensitive anyway. I'm a guy. I'm going to notice attractively drawn figures. Hey, you know, I happen to have a moniker I carry around as a badge of pride, the irredeemable shag, for a reason. And uh, I have a huge soft spot in my heart for Hawkwoman. Uh, she's she's brilliant. She's tough. She's gorgeous, redheaded. As you said, she cuts a nice figure. Hawkwoman, is, she's the complete package. She's the whole thing and a bag of chips. Adore her. So, yes, I, I do not have the ability to separate myself from that discussion either. So this panel will be on our website, folks. Please feel free <laughs> to surprise. Well, we've talked quite a bit about it. We might as well share yeah, it. Yeah, now it has to be there. So <laughs> feel Sorry, free to Mom. leave your own comments about whether we're being, you know, lascivious or whether we're, you know, within our rights here. So <laughs> Yeah, I'd be interested. I actually really would be interested in reading comments on this and what people's thoughts are. It, it may be that you and I are just the modern day equivalent of Beetle and Booster and we're just a couple of <laughs> harmless yet douchey bros. That could be us too. <laughs> wow, that would be the first time I was ever described that way, but... <laughs> I don't know. You tell me, I guess. Well, um, I've got a few notes here as well. Uh, one of the things I love is that, you know, again, uh, we, we, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. We have been waiting months for this to happen. I mean, Mr. Miracle got kidnapped in issue 15, I think, of the book. Uh, and so now we're here at 25 months later. I mean, that's like an eternity in comic book land, waiting five months for the storyline to finally play out. So it's very exciting that we finally get to shift from Earth to the JLI members in space. We've only seen little nitpicks of them. Uh, one of the things interesting about Scott, Scott Free, you know, he really is the center of the story. The story is surrounding him because it's all about either rescuing him or bartering him or whatever, but really mm -hmm. he's barely in it. I mean, he's on the cover and you see his face once or twice. He's practically a MacGuffin at this point, really, because the story's about him, but he's not even in it. So I just found that kind of interesting the way they played it out. Sure. Uh, one thing I don't think came up in our recap, but it's worth mentioning was in between last issue where the JLI appeared in orbit around uh, Apocalypse and where this issue picks up, the JLI spaceship was actually destroyed and uh, along with uh, Big Barda's equipment, her, her, her mega rod. Um, there it is. And she transported everyone down to Apocalypse. So it's, I found that an interesting storytelling technique where they just skipped that whole thing and covered it in dialogue saying, you know, thank goodness we got away when our ship blew up. And it's like, oh, that's a good way to just jump forward and not have to deal with a lot of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's sure. a way to save some time and move the story forward. I thought that was clever. Yeah. Um, okay, this is just my brain working too much when you do a podcast and you overanalyze these things. But Elrond referred to a increment of time. He was talking to uh, MangaCon, and he referred to something to, as a certain amount of time as Kaopex. <laughs> and I'm like, the only word I can come up with is Kaopectate. I'm sorry for, you know, a diarrhea aid. And I'm like, what, what, what were they going for with this? I don't even know. So I think it, it's like, it's the measure of time from when you first feel that rumble in oh your my stomach. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were about to do the, the baseball rhyme. Okay, thank goodness you did. 
And, and then I thought maybe it was an anagram for seconds, but it's not. I don't. I don't know. Mm. It's you know. You, again, you tape. folks at home, help me out here. So, all right, Rocket Red's new armor. <laughs> what do you think of the new Apocalypse armor? Eh, Thank you. It's okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting design, but it never did much for me. I love the classic Rocket Red armor. The classic Rocket yeah. Red armor. I don't care if it's boxy. I don't care if it looks like a Transformer, Rob. Uh, it looks great. I love that look. I love it. So I think it's more special the, the boxier it is. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just awkward and, and goofy at that point. And then you've got this great humor to go with it. Yeah. It loses something in, in being beefed up a little bit, I think. Well, I, and I, it, it did provide some nice development for Dimitri, which was sorely needed for a while now. I mean, he's been for around sure. for a while. He's had some development here and there. You know, we got in this issue, we got some humor with him. We got some good use of language. You know, a, a Theodore Cleaver reference. For those of you who don't know, that's Beaver. I'll leave it to Beaver. Uh, so, I mean, mm-hmm. it was nice moments for Dimitri. But, yeah, I don't know. I... I one person posed a question in the feedback a while back, wondering if changing the armor was a purposeful effort to to distance themselves from the Soviet Union uh, as a comic book. Like, maybe it came down from the publisher. I don't know. Oh, huh. So, That's an interesting thought. I, yeah, I don't know. Might be worth asking uh, Giffen someday. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. I love seeing Jean's invisibility power. Because you forget, when you read this comic, you know, m- maybe not when you read Grant Morrison's JLA or something else, you know, Martian Manhunter is amazing. But in this book, Martian Manhunter is usually the straight guy who's just frustrated with his teammates. He's the mother hen. But right. you don't, like, when he uses his invisibility in this issue, it's kind of like, oh, I forgot he has that power. That's right. That's so cool. So it was a nice use. This is the second issue in a row, or, or maybe it was uh, two months ago, where we've seen some of Jean's uh, lesser-used powers uh, effectively, and it's nice to see that. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Like, we, we don't get to see a lot of those powers very much. So, yeah, I kind of had the same response when I saw some of them. I was like, oh, yeah, he actually does have superpowers. <laughs> well, I mean... He's not, just, he's not just his powers and being upset at people. Well, and that kind of goes back to, like, the office humor. I mean, that really is what this comic is about, is what happens at the office, rather than, you know, it's it's not about saving the world, it's about what happens after you save the world and come back and someone has to take out the trash, and it's pizza night and all that kind of stuff, so yeah. Right. Manga Khan, this is the first time we see that he has a different form, that he's just an empty shell, you know, his container for his energy. That was a big shock. Uh, in fact, I thought he was a gaseous form until I read the issue ahead. I'm like, oh, no, it's an energy form. And so uh, it's kind of interesting. It plays it plays an interesting uh, twist on his character. Yep. He, it definitely looks like a gaseous form, too. I And I have the same thought with yep. that, too. I love the I love the sound his helmet makes when it pops off. Uh-oh, it what makes was a that? puck. <laughs> I think it's P-O-K-K. Puck. All right. <laughs> yeah. I never noticed puck. those, uh, uh, the, there's a word for them, those little uh, sound effects. I can't remember what you call them. But, uh, Snuffleupagus is, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly uh, it. Onomatopoeia? Right. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's actually what it is. So, uh, you're an artist. You should know these things. Way to go. And, yep. uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> my last story note is I love, and someone had to point this out to me because I'm stupid. I love the names of the robots involved with the cluster Elron, Hein 9, uh, and then in the next issue, we're going to get one called K. Dick. They're all science fiction writers. <laughs> you know, you've got L. Ron Hubbard, you got Heinlein, you got Philip K. Dick. Brilliant, brilliant oh. idea. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's great. Oh, see, I like that. See, okay. you're stupid I too. I had no idea. Welcome to the club. Ah, <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> see, this is why we're. This is why there's us and not just me. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this is the kind of stuff you find yourself talking about when you take such a deep dive into a comic book that was just meant to be fun and disposable, and yet 30 years later, we're dissecting it minute by minute, panel by panel. Exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine? Sometimes I think about podcasts like this, you know, because I, I would love to be doing my own comics and stuff like that. And I think, gosh, you know, that's really intimidating thinking that, you know, 30 years down the road, there could be somebody scrutinizing right. every last panel I drew. In fact, actually, uh, I was just on Twitter the other day and uh, comic artist Brent Schoonover, who's really talented, he he suggested that artists should have the ability to put an asterisk on panels and pages that were drawn on the days when when their car got stuck in traffic or, or popped the tire. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just because they might be a little bit more rushed. And 30 years later, I don't know, we're looking at it going, man, that guy, what was he doing? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's intimidating, but it's funny. Artists are real people too. Yeah. I've thought yeah. about that too. Like when, when, when I interviewed JMD Mateus, I thought, okay, what would, you know, I, I know what I did at work this week. How would I feel if someone asked me, as you said, 30 years from now, hey, why did you decide to you know, write that memo? <laughs> yeah. I don't freaking yeah. know. My boss asked me. I don't know. Yeah. So exactly. I wouldn't You're want funny. to scrutinize like that. So a few more comments about now specifically about the art. I've talked a lot about the story, the art. Just a few. The, Ty Templeton. All right. You know, I, and I go through different phases with Templeton. I love his art, but I, one thing I guess I didn't really focus in on until I tried to this issue was he is really, really good with facial expressions, which is probably part of the reason he probably got the job. I mean, he's very, yeah. very good. He, he makes a, a very reasonable replacement for Kevin McGuire. Is he a Kevin McGuire? Well, not necessarily. Uh, and I will tell you folks, Kevin McGuire was not Kevin McGuire in the first issue of JLI either. If you go back and read that yeah. first issue, it's still exceptional, but you compare that to say like issue 16 and they are worlds apart. So, so uh, I, anyway, I think Templeton was a very good choice. I mean, again, we talked a little about Granny Goodness's face on the cover. Uh, if you get in here and you look at the, like the lowly's teeth, we spent a little time talking about Big Barda's face. I mean, he does a great job with facial expressions. I, I'm very impressed. Yeah, he's a good replacement. You're right. Yeah. There's there's not the same flexibility with the face. I don't feel like the same comical flexibility is seen here, but it's still beautifully rendered, and he, and he definitely has mastery over what he's doing. It's uh, good work. There's a great close-up of Granny Goodness on page four. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's a great shot. In fact, there, and there's another one on page oh, yeah. five where she's just maniacally laughing, so really well done. That close-up of her, too, has a real curvy feel to it. It does. And and, yeah. and Ed Asner, so both of them. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> now, and there is, I, I did feel like, from a storytelling perspective, I felt like there was a missing panel. Uh, on page two, uh, it's Manga talking to Wunderbar, and he's he, the big reveal is that you know he that um, Manga has Mister Miracle, and that's going to really make Wunderbar be amazed. So he says, "I've got Mister Miracle," and we stay on Manga Khan's face, and then he says, "Stops you dead in your tracks." I feel like there should have been a panel there of Wunderbar being like, <gasps> you know, some sort of like shock or awe or reaction to this because it, it's almost like we're being told instead of being shown what happened there. So, I, I, I again, I don't know if that's a breakdowns problem, a, a scripting problem. I don't know, but it, I just feel like that was missing. Or maybe I'm too thick. Yeah, that, I don't know. Uh, no, that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting thought there. I don't know if I agree or disagree with that. I, it's an, I remember when I read this feeling like there was some kind, something was kind of missing because then the next page were already jumped. We've already jumped to this phone call between Elrond and, and Manga Khan, mm -hmm. and and it kind of felt like there was not a lot of space in between, especially jumping from that extreme close-up of Manga's mask. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I didn't. I don't feel, know. I, I kind of like the device. It's, I think it's an interesting device because what it what it lets me do is imagine Wunderbar's face, which yeah. apparently is is very stunned. He's <laughs> stopped dead in his tracks. Okay. As Manga Khan has said. So. 
I don't know. It's an interesting device. Maybe maybe it, it would have helped to see the face, but it's it's actually you use the expression um, what showing instead of telling. Yeah, I think showing instead of telling might have actually been the reverse to show the shock on the face. Okay, no idea what you're saying there, but okay. Well, when you're seeing the shock on Wunderbar's face, then you, you're getting the whole picture of, mm-hmm. oh, that's how shocked he is. Look at how shocked Wunderbar is in this moment. Um, but with, with this extreme close up of Manga Khan, we're getting, we're kind of getting to pick up on his intensity and the way he's sort of leaning into this moment. Okay. And, and we're just getting to imagine as a result, like just how blown away, uh, Vermin Wunderbar is by, by this reveal. Okay. So uh, it's an interesting device. Whether or not it works it you know it's it's clearly not like perfect because we're discussing it in this way but you're right that the close-up of manga Khan's face really tight in on there just one half of his face is very effective so yeah well i think it's revealing his intensity in that moment yeah because i can really pick i really pick up on 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 his uh just how well like he has wunderbar like wrapped yeah at a, at a, in attention and even that, the, that's that's how i felt from that panel even the slip from his face mask has just got the slightest hint of a smirk which you know yeah. his mask can't do but it's rendered in right. such a way that it works. So, yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, all in all, I think Templeton has been a great fit. I mean, you look at the past issues we've gotten when we had fill-ins. Giffen did an issue, which was very Giffen, very good, very different, mm-hmm. though, from McGuire. We had two issues with Steve Lealoha, which we weren't terribly complimentary about. Um, <laughs> we've had Bill Willingham, uh, you know, yeah. well-known writer now, uh, but back then artist, yeah. doing a couple of annuals, which was also very good because Willingham's an amazing, amazing illustrator. So I would say, though, that this is – uh, of everyone, this was the right choice to step in and uh, pick up the reins from Kevin McGuire because there's there's a, a and Joe Robinson probably played a role in that too, being the anchor from the, he was building the bridge between McGuire and Templeton. So I, I think it was the right move. I, I would agree. It's about as seamless as you could get. Yeah. My last thought on this is in the letters page. It's interesting. There are some discussion in the letters page, uh, at least two or three different comments from different letter writers asking for the return of Captain Marvel. And you know, we talk about that quite frequently on the show is how much we wish they had kept, kept Captain Marvel around. And then uh, Mark Wade, either uh, who was the uh, the editor writing doing the letters page, either boldly lies or makes an interesting statement here, whichever one. But he says uh, in response to this whole discussion about Captain Marvel, he goes, actually, this is a possibility that comes up among the JLI creative team from time to time. And then he talks about where you can find Captain Marvel in the meantime. So hmm, would have been interesting mm. if they had brought him back. So yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of the house ads that were in this book. We'll just blow through these fairly quickly. But there's some that are worth mentioning. You get a great Plastic Man ad uh, for a miniseries written by Phil Foglio and art by Hilary Barda. And of course, uh, folks, if you love Plastic Man, you should check out the Plastic Cast here on the Firewater Podcast Network, hosted by our good buddy Max Romero. So uh, love this Plastic Man art, right? Oh yeah, this is this is perfect. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, this is everything you want Plastic Man to look like. Exactly. All right, moving on to one that's a little closer to home for us. It is an ad for um, Batman number 426 and 427. It is a silhouette, essentially, of Batman, uh, although you see sort of the cowl and a symbol. And he's carrying the body of a young boy, and he's running through fire. And uh, it says, someone will die because the Joker wants revenge, but you can prevent it. Batman 426 and 427, both on sale in September. And Rob Kelly saw this ad and said, I could prevent (laughs) it. (laughs) I got to get in on that. 
How can I be involved? Exactly. What can I do? Yep. So. Someone will die because Rob Kelly made a phone call. Yeah. That's what it should say. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love this ad. This is gorgeous. I love the fire behind there. It's It's got such a great mood to it. The silhouette, just the rim lighting on Batman's cape. Yeah, this is this is really well done. It's great apart over. Absolutely great. Yep. Yeah. That's redundant. <laughs> That's true, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, up next is one of my favorites. This is an ad for the Dr. Fate ongoing series. So they've already done the miniseries. This is the ongoing so, uh, by J.M.D. Mateus and art by amazing Sean McManus. I love Sean McManus's art and everything, but truly I feel like this was the high watermark for Sean McManus. Uh, mm. Now, I'm, I'm completely biased because I was entirely invested in the series. But it's got Kent Nelson, who's actually inhabited by the by the spirit of Naboo. It's got Eric and Linda Strauss, and then they've got on their leash this little dog who looks like a halfway like a demon because he is. And it says kind of looks like you'd find him in your refrigerator saying Zool. Yes, yeah. Well, it's Petey the demon, so yeah. And behind them is a uh, almost serpenty sort of ghostly image of Doctor Fate, and it says they'll stop the Lords of Chaos right after they walk the dog. The new Doctor Fate, where dark cosmic forces meet the lights, uh, lighter side of life. Oof. Uh, love this series. Uh, uh, Demetrius, did you ever read this thing? Did you just call me Demetrius? Well, I was going to talk about Demetrius, and then I asked, did you ever re- read this thing? Oh, okay. Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. Uh, Demetrius. De- yes, it is. Demetrius wrote the first 24 issues, and it okay. is an amazing story about spirituality, mm. and, and you don't even have to subscribe to a particular faith or anything, guys, to enjoy this. Uh, it's about uh, the reincarnation, the spirit. It's about love. It's about connections with other human beings. Dude, it's seriously powerful stuff. Uh, Have they co- ever collected this? No, and it's a freaking crime. Uh, now, uh, part of the, and I don't, I, I have no idea if this has anything to do with it. There's a little bit of a creep factor there, and people love to bring it out in like CBR articles whenever they want to be like creepiest relationships in comics. They always love to tote this one out because when the miniseries started, uh, Eric Strauss was a little boy, Linda Strauss was his adult stepmother, and then by the end of it, Eric's an adult, and they're kind of in a relationship. So. Oh. But there's, but that's where the reincarnation <laughs> thing comes in. There are actually two old souls that have been together for a very long time and will continue to be together for a very long time. And uh, it's, oh, yeah, it's a beautiful piece. And it's funny. And it's showing McManus artwork. Oh, it's so yeah, I can understand why the PR might not work with that. But it sounds really. You, I mean, you've got me sold. And I, I know you've been a fan of this series for a while. Yeah. I've heard you speak about it so often that you know, whenever I see it in the back issues, I'm always tempted to pick it up because you've spoken so highly of it. One of my first uh, fan letters to DC ever printed was uh, in response to issue number 24 by Demetrius. Oh. So, yeah. Well, well, looky, looky. Yep. So, all right, up next is a house ad for The Unknown Soldier. Invisible, invincible, invulnerable, expendable, The Unknown Soldier. Written by James Owsley. And if you don't know that name, there's a reason, because James Owsley, and I'm probably saying Owsley, yeah, doesn't go by James Owsley anymore. He goes by Christopher Priest. So you've probably heard of him. Uh-huh. So, pretty cool. Very cool. It's a great. Uh, it's a great piece of art. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it was a chance to. They were trying to bring back an old war character in a more modern spin. So it was a twelve issue maxi series, and uh, I don't. I suppose it probably didn't do all that well because it didn't get picked up. So all right. Yeah. Well, those are the house ads for this issue, folks. We are going to move on, though. We're going to keep on trucking, and we're going to go into a segment I like to call Character Spotlight. And this is one of my favorite segments because I actually get to sit down, take a break, and I don't have to try and be this charming, wonderful, engaging person that I always Yeah, take the mask off, buddy. (laughs) 
<laughs> and during this segment, our guest, Luke, will be asked to share some thoughts about one of the characters from this issue. It's not necessarily supposed to be an origin recap, but it's more about where the characters were in the DC Universe before joining the JLI, and what kind of impact the JLI may have had on their careers and lives. So, uh, Luke, why don't you tell us about Hawkman? Hawkman! Okay, I was really intimidated to do this because... As we all know, Hawkman origin and his storyline can be quite convoluted. A hot mess, I believe the term was a invented hot for this. Mess. Okay, so Hawkman was created in 1939 by none other than Gardner Fox. He was created as a backup for Flash Comics, making his first appearance in Flash Comics number one, which was cover dated January 1940. He was drawn by Dennis Neville and had, who had previously assisted Joe Schuster on Superman and Slam Bradley stories. Ooh. The first Hawkman was archaeologist Carter Hall, Woo-hoo! a research scientist and wealthy collector of weapons. Uh, upon a, a, examining a blade uncovered in Egypt, Carter falls into a state of hypnosis, which reveals himself to be the reincarnation of the ancient Egyptian prince Khufu. He soon discovers his reincarnated lover, Shiera, uh, but also his mortal enemy, Hathset. Uh, some attribute Hawkman's look to the Hawk, Hawk people led by Prince Walton and Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon. Ooh. Still, uh, other inspiration for Hawkman can date as far back as Icarus of Greek myth, who had an unfortunate incident involving the sun. Um, famously known as the world's first bad pilot. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was bad. <laughs> <laughs> A little too high. Yep. Okay, Hawkman went on to become the chairman of the Justice Society of America in the 1940s, beginning in All-Star Comics number 8. Uh, by 1942, in Flash Comics issue 24, Hawkman's female companion, Shiera Saunders, finally dons the Hawk Girl costume. Hell yeah. For, oh, yeah. Hawkman was the only character to appear in every Golden Age Justice Society story from All-Star Comics number 3 to number 57. Hawk Girl never appeared in these issues, but she was, yeah, uh, because she was not considered a main character at that point. So Hawkman's longevity with the Justice Society can be attributed to his lack of popularity as much as his success. He was never considered to be popular enough to graduate to his own book, but at the same time, he was never unpopular enough to get the boot. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, In 1959, Hawkman was reinvented for the Silver Age. He was rebooted again with writer Gardner Fox and artist Joe Kubert, whose favorite student in his yet-to-be-created comic art school was Rob Kelly. <laughs> that guy. He gets that he's guy got, again. He's got so much airtime in this episode. Oh, my God. I know. Hi, Rob. Uh, this new Hawkman debuted. The Brave and the Bull debuted in the Brave and the Bull number 34, cover dated Mar- uh, February, March 1961. The story, Creature of a Thousand Capes. In this incarnation, Hawkman was Ketar Hall, an honored member of the winged police force from the planet Thanagar, which orbited Polaris. Ketar, Ketar, right? That's what we're saying. Yep. Ketar served with his wife, Shayara, a policewoman. The relaunch did little to change their costumes, though Hawk Girl went from brunette to, that's right, Shag, a redhead. Woo-woo! <laughs> In their new origin, Hawkman and Hawkwoman pursue the shape-changing villain Bith across the cosmos to Midway City on Earth using a device called the Absorbicron, that's first referred to as an electronic brain, hmm. to learn everything about the strange new planet. Arriving in Midway City, they visit police commissioner George Emmett, who believes their story and helps them by giving them clothes, establishing undercover identities, setting them up with an apartment, and jobs as the directors of Midway City Museum. 
wow, where can I get a George Emmett in my life? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty handy guy to know. Uh, you, you know, you know, uh, Carter Hall's just sitting around, or Katar Hall's just sitting around with Bruce Wayne going like, so what's Commissioner Gordon doing for you? <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah. Good grief. Yeah, not bad. Not bad at all. So after six issues in The Brave and the Bold, the Hawks were moved to Mystery in Space, <laughs> which was the home of science fiction stories with a superhero sensibility, uh, such as Adam Strange. Think Adam Strange there. Things get interesting in the 1960s when the original Hawkman and Hawkgirl show up via DC's concept of the multi multiple Earths. And then in 1964, the Silver Age Hawkman, he moved from mystery in space into his own ongoing series cover dated April, May 1964. This was the first self-titled book in Hawkman's history. Following that, Hawkman appears in Justice League of America number 31, cover dated November 1964. Hawkman was inducted into the Justice League of America. Hawkgirl also appeared, but was told by the predominantly male team that only one hero could be inducted at a time. Oh. Yeah, right. Hawkgirl being a sweet, subservient woman, even though a complete badass in her own right, admitted that Hawkman was the leader of their two-person team and that she felt sufficiently honored by having him accepted. What they didn't draw in this issue was the following panel where Shayera turns around and mutters something to herself about penises, chauvinists, and toxic masculinity. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Hawkman's solo solo title was canceled in 1968 at only issue 27. Yeah, I was going to say earlier, you said Hawkman broke big, and I was going to be like, really? Did he? Did he? Really? (laughs) Hey, was his first solo title? True. Yeah, well, okay. When you're waiting that long. As I say, Aztec uh, got his own series. I don't know that he broke big. Hmm. Okay, fine. He broke medium. <laughs> there you go. Uh, later, DC tried to unite two low-selling yet still popular characters in one title with the Adam and Hawkman. Although this pairing of the characters is still referenced today through their friendship, this title only lasted seven issues. After this... Such a yes. weird idea to take two low-selling books and combine them as if that's a better idea. You know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, hey, folks, you didn't buy Speedball or Night Thrasher, but let's put them in a book together. You'll love didn't it. Didn't they? Really? Didn't you know, they? I, don't, I don't think they did that, but I'm just using that as a crazy analogy. Like, why would you do that? Called New Warriors. Well, I mean, the new, I, anyway, <laughs> they were both spinoffs of New Warriors. Anyway. Okay. All right. Yes. I, well, and it's such a weird pairing, too. Let's put the guy with wings with the guy that shrinks really small. Like, there's not really a a lot of crossover in terms of ability or where you think they would go. Right. So, yeah, it is an odd, it was an odd decision. It's kind of a delightfully odd decision. I like when they take two completely off-the-wall characters and put them together like that. But, yeah, that was really interesting. I love their friendship. I love that they developed, I mean, and their friendship existed solely because they were in a book together, really, is where it came from. And I, yeah. and I love that they developed that and it became something. But it's just, its origin is just mind-boggling. Yeah. Yep. Well, after that, Hawkman continued to appear in the Justice League of America and occasional backups in Detective Comics and World Finest Comics. And as comics strode into political arenas in the 1970s, Hawkman became the conservative, which we saw in this issue, playing opposite the liberal Green Arrow. In 1977, Hawkgirl thought enough time had passed, and she demanded her own membership in the Justice League of America, which she was rightfully given. Yes. Uh, and two years later, she changed her name from Hawk Girl to Hawk Woman. One of the many reasons I love Shayera. Oh, she's fantastic. She's so good. 
In the late 1970s, Thanagar went to war with Adam Strange's adopted planet Ran, causing the Hawks to sever their ties to their homeworld completely, a world which had become unrecognizably militarized to them. Thanagar took their war to Earth in the Shadow War, which was written by Tony Isabella and illustrated by Richard Howell. And the popularity of this series led to a Hawkman special in 1986 and an ongoing Hawkman title in the same year, all by the same team. Sadly, this series only lasted 17 issues before being canceled. Now, this series, this was actually my introduction to Hawkman. Uh, so I have a special fondness for this. Uh, and I love the way that Richard, Richard Howell drew them, too. In Crisis on Infinite Earths, Hawkman's continuity was addressed by consigning the Golden Age Hawkman and Hawkgirl into limbo with the rest of the Justice Society. <laughs> the Silver Age Thanagarian Hawks survived without much revision. So you have a preference for the old. Um, I, I do love Carter Hall. Yes. And, well, the whole thing about the JSA being put in limbo anyway. I mean, it's, uh, it, it maybe oh, yeah. it was for the best because they may, maybe they were going to mishandle them in the after crisis and it's better that they came back five or six years later. But just boo, JSA. It's <laughs> so good. Don't put them in a corner. Nobody puts baby in a corner. Yeah. And that's pretty much where we find our characters at this point in their history, which is good. Their story goes on to become one of the most complicated messes I've ever seen. <laughs> Uh, I long for the days when the Hawks story is, is just simple. Uh, when they're, uh, you know, the, the Thanagarian Hawks, they were my introduction to the characters, and I felt like they had a compelling backstory, wonderful relationship, and uncomplicated motivations. But, you know, oh well, such as comics. <laughs> for, an ex- for an extensive history of Hawkman and Hawkwoman, please pick up Doug Zawiza's Hawkman Companion, which I mentioned earlier, available on InStockTrades.com. And to read the history that I borrowed a lot of this from in abbreviated form check out your guide to infinite crisis a brief history of hawkman online by julian darius nice now i I will touch on just a little bit of what happens later because it is relevant to this uh, okay. You know, Hawkworld comes about in a few years, which is an amazing series. If you've never read the miniseries, you should give it a try. Yes, there are some controversial things in there. Yes, some people don't like the portrayal of Hawkman and the drugs and stuff like that. But Tim Truman is got a real vision for it. It's powerful. Then the ongoing series has a lot going for it. And a lot of negative stuff you can say, too. But it really does completely rewrite Hawkman's history, which is relevant here because – what John Ostringer, who wrote The Ongoing, found himself trying to do was patch continuity holes. Like you said, right. you've never seen such a mess uh, with continuity as Hawkman. It is. Yeah, because they completely disappear. Right. So they were there one month and completely gone the next. So how do you explain that? Well, and that's where the problem becomes for these JLI issues, because essentially this Hawkman and this Hawkgirl, according to the new continuity after Hawkworld, never existed. So how do you, so John Ostringer found himself with the unenvious task of patching those holes and one of the patches he used was very cleverly written. But again, it's another continuity headache, which is to say that this Hawkman and this Hawkwoman who are appearing here in this issue are not the actual Hawkman and Hawkwoman from either the Golden Age or Silver Age. They are two other Thanagarians who are posing as Carter Hall and Shara Hall. And I know. And they're spies. <laughs> and it's it, it made sense for the time. And that's fine why he patched it that way. It gives you a real headache for here. So you know what I say? Read it in the spirit it's intended, which is this is supposed to be the Silver Age satellite era version of Hawkman and Hawkwoman. And just deal with it from, from there, really. And then go read Hawkworld separately and enjoy the hell out of it. Because quite frankly, that's actually the coolest uh, version of Shayera ever in the Hawkworld series. She's a complete badass. She's amazing. Uh, and so, uh, either way, they all have their own merits. 
I haven't read uh, I haven't read Hawkwell. It's um it's a very divisive thing. A lot of people have really strong feelings on it, which I'm sure we'll be seeing in the comment section by now. Someone has already probably sure. written a dissertation. Uh, I think I I was turned off by the metal wings. Really? Give I me. The, yeah, no, I want feathers. I I, I mean, think, this, I think the feathers look ridiculous. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. I am not. I prefer the I prefer the visual aesthetic of the Hawk World, Hawkman and Hawkwoman. I prefer the Shira Hawk World uh, version, but for Carter's personality, I prefer the like kind of almost the post zero hour version, which is like a the melding of Carter Hall and Katar Hall into like you know just this guy, or even the the later JSA version where it's it's just Carter. You know, it's, I like the Carter personality, but I like the visualization mm-hmm. of the uh, metal wings better. Really? Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I love the feather wings. Well, it was the I '90s, just... and I was all in. So you know, I'm pro- okay. I'm probably brainwashed. That's, that's the only way we can explain it. <laughs> That's the only way we can explain this. Because they were extreme. They were extreme. <laughs> they're going. They're going high. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, on, All that, right. on All that, right. that joyous laughter, I think we need to laugh some more. And we're going to take us on to our next segment, something called... Pwahaha Award. This is where we are going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Luke will pick a moment, and only one of those is going to walk away with a coveted Wahaha Award. Luke, you are the guest, unfortunately, so you get to go ahead and go first. What is your nomination? Okay, my nomination is, as we were just talking about Hawkman, Hawkman being a complete blowhard at the JLI headquarters, and specifically after Blue Beetle has sworn. Uh, so, okay. In this panel, I don't know what the, I don't know what the page number is on your book, but it's the top left panel on the trade here. And Blue Beetle says, the hell you don't. That's all you've been doing since you got here. To which Hawkman says, hell? Did you just say hell? Why never in a million years would, would Aquaman say? And suddenly there's a boom and Hawkman shifts and goes, what the devil? <laughs> So when you're when you're reading it in its timing, it's hell. Did you just say hell? Never in a million years would Aquaman say what the devil. So it's to me, it's like perfect because he's criticizing the swearing here, and then he goes straight into like a this low grade curse. That uh, to me, the timing of it was great, especially after like being criticized by the two women, and oh, he's being Republican and blah blah blah. He's droning on and. And then it just goes into that moment, which I thought was funny. I had a good laugh out loud. It is very funny. It is very good. Because the hell joke continues on later, too. So that's good. Uh, And that's page 21, by the way, for those of you keeping track at home. So uh, that is a very good moment. It is not the same as my nomination. Go figure. Well, I mean, sometimes it does match up. And I figured because mine is so freaking good that we might actually match this issue. But I guess not. So mine, hmm. is, mine is on page seven. It is amongst the conversation with Martian Manhunter and Big Barda with the lowlies. Let's see. So Martian Manhunter says, it's on, again, page seven. It's the third panel. Martian Manhunter says, you do realize, of course, that we're trapped here with no way to get home. And Barda says, and I hope you realize that we're here to rescue my husband, Mr. Miracle, the world's, dot, 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 the galaxy's greatest escape artist. If anyone can get his home, Scott can. Martian Manhunter responds, then I might question why he needs us to rescue him. And she just has a panel with just dots, no words. And he goes, but I won't. So again, the lead is because I might say, because I might question, da da da, but I won't. So that panel, I genuinely burst out laughing out loud when I got to that panel. I thought it was hysterical. So we each have differing opinions here. Two jokes go in, only one joke comes out. So mm. who's going to okay. make your case, sir? Well, you see, Shag. <laughs> 
Who likes a party pooper? Nobody likes a party pooper. <laughs> True. And essentially, Hawkman has come, and he is pooping all over the JLI party. We've got a great arm wrestling match going on with Lobo and Guy Gardner. I mean, the, the whole group has gathered. Even Batman is gathered around to watch this thing. Mm-hmm. And here in the corner, in the midst of all this fun and joyful revelry, is that guy that, how did he even get an invite to this party just talking about how things used to be and how great everything used to be? And now suddenly, one of the guys in the room is swearing, and now he's taking an issue with that. And right as he's taking an issue with that, something happens, and he basically swears. True. Using a devil-hell connection as well. Okay. Yes, using a devil-hell connection also brings up Aquaman, and I've got a soft spot for that. That is true. That is true. Aquaman would, why Aquaman would never say, what the devil? So (laughs) to me, like, when you read it with its intended timing and the intended shift in the voice, to me, I think it's it's a brilliant spot of comedy. All right, well, I'll tell you what. You haven't convinced me, because I still think my panel's funnier, especially with Barda's just panel of dot, 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 when she realizes why are they having to rescue Mr. Miracle, the world's greatest you know, escape artist. That's brilliant. However, Martian Manhunter and Big Barda will have many, many more opportunities to win Wahaha Awards. Hawkman is only around for a few more issues. So, in this case, folks, I do believe we're going to award the Wahaha Award to Mr. Katar Hall. So, congratulations, Kater. Please accept this award. Uh, it is as tangible as the laughter we give you. So, wear it with pride, sir. Feels like a consolation prize, Shag. Take it, your take your win and go home with it, all right? Jeez, oh, Pete. Speaking of going home. I want a real win. Speak- I'm going back to the issue. I'm going to find something else. <laughs> Well, you take some time doing that because I don't know if you remember when we started this thing off, you told me at some point you were actually going to have to leave for a while. Oh, yeah. As I understand it. um, I had that thing I had to do. Right. Luke, you can tell he's humble here, folks. He's not even saying it. Luke, one of the things Luke is most well known for is his gorgeous, gorgeous locks, his beautiful head Very, very gorgeous locks of hair. It is. There's no denying it. The guy's got great hair. And as he explained to me, he'd been contacted by the Shineheart Wig Company. And yep. they actually want to take a mold of Luke's gorgeous quaff and yeah. uh, replicate it. So uh, you'd be able to buy it. Yeah, for a limited edition run. Right. Oh, okay. So so it will be kind of hard to find a Luke Dobb wig soon. It's but a anyway. higher price point. So we're going to let Luke go off and get, I don't even know how they mold someone's hair, but uh, hopefully they we'll wash see. it for you afterwards. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> Well, Luke's getting all that molding done. Uh, I'm yes. going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. I want to start off by plugging a couple of JLI-related podcasts. First, be on the lookout in July, folks, for an exclusive JLI mini-episode. Now, it will not be part of this JLI feed, so you're going to have to watch elsewhere, specifically in the FW Presents podcast feed. It's going to be part of our summer special. Now, in this special 20-minute JLI episode, Chris Franklin will be my guest as we tackle the 1987 Mr. Miracle special by Mark Evanier and Steve Rude. So good! So watch for that in July as part of the FW Presents podcast feed. 
Another podcast, on the recent Who's Who podcast, myself and my podcasting life partner, Rob Kelly, we covered Who's Who in the DC Universe Loose Leaf Edition number three. Now, this issue featured a couple of JLI favorites, including Ice by Adam Hughes and MangaCon by Joe Phillips. So be sure to check that out. Also, over on the Head Speaks podcast network, I discussed Justice League America annual number five, which was part of the Armageddon 2001 crossover event. My thanks to Aaron Head Moss for having me on the show. And of course, Aaron is a past guest of this show. Finally, now, not one of my podcasts, but another show on our network, the First Strike Invasion podcast recently tackled the Invasion spinoffs, specifically the Acronym Legion number one and Justice League Europe number one. So tune into that to hear Siskoid and Boss discuss the JLE's first outing. Now remember folks, as we're going through this episode, through the feedback, through the comic, whatever part, be sure to hit us up on the social media. Use our hashtag poundfwpodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I said earlier, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember, if you're out of the United States, let me know. We will assign you the appropriate embassy. And it's good to know too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, let's get to those iTunes reviews. And as always, as a thank you for those that leave iTunes reviews, we read the entire review on the air. And please, folks, please, if if you haven't left a review, please consider doing so. It really, really helps raise the profile of the show and helps other people find the show, and our community just continues to grow. Speaking of international reviews, we're going to start off with one from our Canadian embassy, Ethan Ainsworth, who has a podcast of his own called Knights, a Marvel podcast. He writes in to say, the JLI was my favorite Justice League team, but now I can't make a podcast about them because of Shag. Nonetheless, my would-be podcast, Tales from the Embassy, wouldn't have even been half as great as this show. So I'll leave that to the professional and get on with my regularly scheduled Marvel podcast. This show has quickly jumped to the top of my must-listen, and deservedly so. The show never gets old, in part thanks to the ever-rotating co-hosts, and in part thanks to the fact that this poor man has dedicated to spend all of his free time talking about comics, and as such has become a master of talk show entertainment. (laughs) Uh, Then he goes on to say, keep up the good work, Bob, Jack, Todd? I figure if I keep guessing, eventually I'll get your name. Joe? Steven? Stefan? Okay, I'll leave you alone. George? (laughs) It's a nice try, Ethan. It's right there in the name, though. It's Shag. Our next iTunes review comes from Robert J. Smith. He's the author of a book called Pet Detectives, and he writes, An issue-by-issue examination of one of the most unique and best superhero team books ever published. Back in the day, I read every single issue from number one through 30-something. I'm enjoying remembering the issues that I read 30 years ago, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about the ones that came after I bailed. Excellent work, Shag. Well, gosh, Robert and Ethan, I really appreciate those iTunes reviews. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who has submitted an iTunes review. And for those of you who have not yet submitted an iTunes review, well, I hope tomorrow you wake up in bed next to Granny Goodness. I'm just saying. Now we're going to get into your feedback from the episode covering Justice League International number 19 with our guest, David Gallagher. And I'm going to be pulling your comments from our website, email, social media, all over the place. And I'm not going to be reading every single word because there's just far too much of it. So I'll just be cherry picking. Our first comment comes from Mike Staley from the Silent Night podcast, which focuses on Cassandra Kane. Mike writes, I was vaguely familiar with the JLI from browsing through the trades, but it was the JLI Blahaha podcast that really pulled me in. I immediately bought the first two trades, and I've been loving reading all the stories you've talked about on the show. And I must say that the JLI did something I didn't think anyone or anything could do. Make me love Guy Gardner. I got introduced to him in the Death of Superman story and really disliked him from the start. I kept hearing about why he was actually a lot of fun, but he always just irritated me with his attitude. Then I read the JLI. Specifically, it was the sight of Guy beating the crap out of the Russians while singing God Bless America that finally broke through my shell of hatred. And despite my enjoyment of seeing Guy act completely different after the mouse and one punch moment, I was so happy to see the good old brash guy back in the last issue. 
Then we heard from my buddy Jose Rivera. He writes, David Gallagher brought up a couple of interesting points. First, as a New Yorker, I totally got the Pat Kierman thing for Maxwell Lord. And while I know Sam Neill was the basis for the look of Max, I still think he looks like Peter Gabriel from the Shock the Monkey video. Hmm, interesting. Then he says, as for the Legends of Tomorrow note, I'm glad I'm not the only one who sees Nate and Ray as being a very Booster and Beetle dynamic, which is even funnier when the character of Ray Palmer was originally supposed to be Ted Kord on Arrow. Then we heard from our buddy Aaron Head Moss from the Headcast Network and also a past guest of the show. Aaron says, I was one of those that thought Lobo's blue coloring on the cover was due to the lighting. Interesting to hear how he was originally bluish. Then he goes on to say, I never looked at DC Legends Tomorrow as a form of the JLI, but now that you mention it, it does make sense. It doesn't make me like the way they treat the Atom or Firestorm any better, but it makes sense. Then Mark Baker Wright wrote in from Black Rock's Toy Box. Mark writes, I'm intrigued to learn of David Gallagher's fondness for old-time radio. I, too, greatly enjoy old-time radio and have listened to the entire Blue Beetle series. Of course, Radio's Dan Garrett, which is one T, was rather different than the later versions of the character published by Charlton and DC with two Ts, let alone Ted Kord. Then we heard from Max Traver. He goes, I want to thank David for cementing the Legends of Tomorrow and JLI connection. Now I know why I warmed up to Legends of Tomorrow so much, even though I officially stopped watching all the other CWDC shows. Man, okay, everyone's on this kick about Legends of Tomorrow and JLI ever since David said on the last episode. Yeah, I guess I'm going to have to go back and give Legends of Tomorrow another try. I dropped out, I don't even know what season they're on right now, but I dropped out eventually, so maybe it's worth checking it out. Max continues to say, also, Only Living Boy just jumped onto my must-read list big time. And finally, I have shared David's love of Guy Gardner and his frustration with fandom's general lack of sympathy for Guy's tragic treatment over the years for quite some time now. All right. Then I heard from Chris Franklin, a fellow member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, with shows such as the JLU cast, Superman Movie Minute, and more. And, of course, Chris is a past guest of this show. He says, I love it when Batman interacted with his old JLA teammates. He treated them completely differently than he did the JLI crew, as if all those back issues of Justice League of America, Brave and the Bold, and all that happened, which always makes me smile. I love this version of the Hawks, too. It always made me even sadder when all that was thrown out the window due to continuity BS. Absolutely true, Chris. Then heard from my buddy Jeff R. He goes, I'm not a big fan of this cover because it made me almost miss the issue. If I recall correctly, this one came out a bit early, less than four weeks after the last. When I was scanning the racks of my local comic shop, I scanned right over it thinking I'd already picked up that issue. I had to go back for it later after I realized my mistake. Now, remember, he's talking about those two covers that go back to back with Lobo and Guy in different positions. Then Jeff goes on to explain the whole thing with Hawkman and Hawkwoman. I'm going to read this for you here, folks. I've already talked a little bit on this episode about my feelings about the Hawks and how you should treat it. But this is the you know pseudo-legitimate post-Hawkworld uh, explanation for the Hawks. So here you go. We're going to get out of our system just one time. So Jeff writes, uh, Anyhow, it's always important to remember that these two aren't actually Katar and Shayara Hall, but rather a pair of psychopathic Thanagarian spies sent to infiltrate Earth, who picked cover identities even though nobody on Earth would have recognized their real names and picked those two names for their cover and just randomly happened to pretend to be married, even though the actual Katar and Shara had neither done much of note nor even met each other yet. There you go, folks. Get the Hawk stuff out of your system because it's too convoluted to try and let it bother you too often. So, yes, there was the, these Hawks. I choose to think of them as the Silver Age Hawks. And then there's the post-Hawk World uh, continuity retcon. They both work fine independently. Trying to meld the two doesn't make any sense. So just move on is my recommendation. All right, then we heard from Chris Lewis from our UK embassy. Chris says, Lobo is a shade of blue on both the number 18 and number 19 covers. I'm tempted to say it's the lighting, but I'm not sure I care that much. Maybe this color is just how Lobo looks when he flushes, when he's about to wail on Guy on the cover of number 18, and when he blushes, when he's embarrassed that the tables are turned and the Guy has been restored and is about to return the beating on the cover of number 19. Do I win a no prize? <laughs> Good thought, Chris. 
Chris also says he's loving the fire, ice, booster, and beetle scenes. This must be one of the first times we're seeing an evolving dynamic between these four. And for me, this interplay defines this particular era of the JLI, along with the guy and ice relationship, the first flickering of which we also see for the first time in this issue. Very good observation. I like that, Chris. Then he says, I also like how McGuire and Rubenstein portray Captain Adam with dark rings around his eyes. I don't think this detail is always included in the captain's look, but it adds a depth to his reflective metal face that I prefer. I would tend to agree with you, Chris. Then we hear from my buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. And uh, Jimmy's always a great sport about playing along with my silly jokes. He writes, Irish Embassy calling, and I'm in a foul mood. Lobo just smashed through the Irish Embassy wall, and the debris gave me a concussion that has unleashed my inner rage. No more Mr. Nice Irish Embassy. I'm here to tell you that the unvarnished truth about the so-called irredeemable shag. And here it is. Doink! Ouch, uh, sorry. Guy Gardner just flew past me and walloped my head with a GL construct. He muttered something about, this will be better for you in the long run, and disappeared. Now I have an aching head and have no idea what I was talking about before. Hmm, must be the latest issue of the JLI podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Jimmy, for playing along with my ridiculous jokes. Jimmy writes in to say, it was a great turn by David Gallagher in the guest host seat. I remember the Convergence Green Lantern Corps as a fun read, and his enthusiasm for guys and characters fun to see. Then he says, I think we have to agree with Shag. Hal Jordan is the worst. I think Guy was the person you love to hate in the JLI run, but Guy actually came out best when Chuck Dixon and Bo Smith took over his writing the character in his own title. Chuck Dixon's year one tale is a great Guy origin and revealed a person that has struggled through a lot to become a hero that he would eventually become. Then Jimmy poses a good question. With this being McGuire's last regular episode, I was wondering if anyone knows why he left. As far as I recall, he didn't do too much post-JLI apart from the Captain America miniseries. You know, um, I'm going to put that on the ether. You guys, please write it in the comments. Why did McGuire leave JLI? Uh, Jimmy, my memory could be completely spotty. I've I've read the Tomorrow's Masterworks, uh, but it's been a couple years since I've read it. I want to say it was to work on the Adventures of Captain America miniseries, which was gorgeously rendered, the issues he did, at least. And I think he wanted to start doing some of his own uh, creator-owned stuff, if I remember right. So, uh, anyway, folks, write in the comments. Let me know. Please tell me how wrong I am. Then we heard from Evertom Vieira do Carmo, and I'm sure I said that wrong. Terribly sorry, Evertom. Uh, he's from our Brazilian embassy. He writes to say, believe it or not, the Brazilian editions of JLI are better because they translate the jokes to our context, which makes it so much funnier. And then he says, by the way, the Boahaha Award should have gone to the pulling the hair joke. You know, that was a funny joke. I'll give that to you, Evertom. All right, then we heard from Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for Girl blog from our Scottish embassy. Martin says, I enjoyed this issue a lot. The quieter issues are my favorites. Those day-in-the-life issues that the Avengers and New Teen Titans did so well around 1980. I do disagree that giving Lobo his own series made him less fun. For me, that's when he really blossomed as a character. All right, Martin, fair defense. Anyone else out there thought that Lobo really blossomed after he got his own series? Also, I think it's fair to say the discussion might need a segment into, was Lobo better with miniseries, or was Lobo better with an ongoing series? Because I also, like you, bought a bunch of the miniseries, and I loved them. But once he got to the ongoing, for me, it just kind of fizzled. But I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that, Marty. Then we heard from Ward Hill Terry. He goes, well done, Shag, for roping in another comics pro. It's too bad that David is off base about Guy Gardner. He's a jerk, and Hal Jordan's getting a bum rap. I think that Carrie Limbo had some kind of mind power behind her advertised clairvoyance. She was able to manipulate both Guy and Hal into doing just what she wanted. Stay away, Hal. She's troubled, I tell you. Or maybe it was Denny O'Neill who manipulated them all. Huh. Well, Ward Hill Terry... 
uh, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Mine just happens to be that Hal Jordan is the worst. So I think we'll agree to disagree, but I love having the discourse with you. Then we heard from my good buddy Tim Price. He writes in with a lot of comments of things he loved last issue, specifically the Hawks. And he says, oh, the Hawks, if only Giffen and DiMatteis had written a series for them. So much potential for this take on a couple. What could have been? You know, Tim, you inspired some thoughts in me, which is kind of scary because anything that Tim says inspiring other people is just terrifying. But anyway, you inspired me thinking about this because if you think about DiMatteis, very, very soon in this time period where we are right now in Justice League uh, number 20, this kind of era, soon afterwards, they launch two ongoing monthly books that he starts, the Mr. Miracle book and the Dr. Fate book. Both are about suburban superheroes, kind of as a couple. You get, of course, uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda and Married. Then you get Eric and Linda Strauss, who are kind of sort of a couple, in Dr. Fate. Again, both uh, suburban superhero settings. So what if it hadn't been Mr. Miracle or hadn't been Dr. Fate and it had been instead Hawkman and Hawkwoman in sort of that suburban bliss thing? That would have been, oh my gosh, could you imagine? That would have been amazing. All right. Sorry, Tim Price goes on. He's got some more comments. He says, Oberon talking to Dinah. Gosh, I thought it was obvious that this was the result of the Lombo Hunters. I see David's point, though, that Dinah was making excuses, but more because she was hurting emotionally and didn't want to explain her situation, losing her canary cry. Boy, this page makes it so real for me. Dinah's not coming back. Big emotions. Oof. Uh, Tim, you and I were in the same wavelength there. I mean, that page almost makes me cry. It's so powerful. At least the way I chose to interpret it. Then Tim points something out that I should have mentioned before now, folks. He goes, I must take issue with saying goodbye to McGuire with this issue. He has a mere two-month break and then returns for issues 22 through 24. That's when I say he finishes being the regular penciler. So cut it out. He's not an ex-penciler yet. You know, I totally dropped the ball on that. I forgot that uh, McGuire does come back for three issues. So, I, you know, it's still the beginning of Ty Templeton. But you're right. Uh, Kevin McGuire will be back for a while. Then we heard from Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy, and he gives us another <laughs> he gives us another haiku. Uh, he says, "An unwitting fray. Batman does not trust Lobo. Then apocalypse." Thank you, Adam. I love these little haikus. Then we heard from Lucien Dessar, who uh, he let us know he is still reading JLI for the first time in sequence with the show. That's awesome, Lucien. Then Mike LaCroix from the Canadian Embassy, he did us a solid by mentioning the JLI podcast to the artist Ty Templeton. Got his attention on the show. Thanks, Mike. Then we heard from Jeff Polier. Uh, he says, the biggest revelation of this episode for me was that there was a Blue Beetle radio show. I'm 45, and I'm sure this is the first I've heard of it. Well, sorry, Jeff. We were trying to keep it a secret from you. Cat's out of the bag now. Or maybe the Beatles out of the bag, I should say. Then over on Twitter, James Wynn uh, said he loved David Gallagher giving Guy the love he deserves. It was a great spotlight. And then he says one teensy discrepancy, though. The first Guy Gardner the readers ever met was not the PE teacher of Green Lantern number 59. The first Guy Gardner the readers met was the guy on the cover of issue 59. And he gave us a shot of that. And it's Guy Gardner hovering over Hal. And he's like got his foot on him. And, and Guy's wearing a, the traditional Green Lantern costume. And he says, get off this earth, Hal Jordan. There's room for only one Green Lantern. Me. David Gallagher responded saying, you're absolutely right. I had misremembered that as a largely alternative story that showed what had happened if he got the ring. James and David went on to have a very nice conversation on Twitter about Guy Gardner, and there was a lot of love for Guy Gardner in that thread. So if you're out on Twitter, check it out. Then we're here from Professor Alan Quarterbin of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. He said, greasy episode. I hope he meant great episode. Anyway, and he says, love the guest, adequately like to some extent the host. Thank you so much for that, Alan. I really appreciate that. And we got a little advanced feedback on issue 20 
the one we're covering today. Uh, Alexander Osiris said, up to number 20 already? Time for a binge listen. And Michael O'Brien wrote in to say, as much as I love the JLI, as Shag well knows from my feedback, somehow I completely forgot about this cover itself. It's freaking awesome. I have lots of Mr. Miracle stuff hanging around the house. And he goes on to mention several of the items. And he says, but I need to dig into this one and slap it in a frame on the wall. Just don't tell my lovely big Barta at home. <laughs> Good luck with that, Michael. I think she might notice it on the wall. All right. Now I want to take a second to thank all our folks that shared this show on their own social media timeline. We're talking Facebook and Twitter. It's a long list of names. I realize that, folks. I say this every month. You're probably sick of it. But these folks supported the show and helped promote it. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. And this time out, we're looking at nearly 70 names of folks who helped promote last episode. So here we go, fellow leaguers. Strap in. Our thanks to Bill Beer, Brian Yardley, Callum Nauer, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Warden, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Social Club, Dale Russell, Daniel Budnick, David Bayer Jr., David Gallagher. Oh, I know that guy. DC in the 80s. DCOCD, Derek Crabb, Deron Murphy, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine. Wow, we have two doctors who listen to the show now. I feel like we're kind of highbrow. LTO Gus, Fat Man Chu, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Gord Tolton, History of Comics on Film, H-O-C-O-F, Jake Muir, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, The Yard Sale Artist, Jay Powers, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Justice's First Dawn, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Con L, Chris Dados, Luke Dobb, oh, I know that guy too, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt the Chat, Matthew Cody, Max Romero and his accounts, It's Plastic Man and The Mirror Factory, Masters of the Universe cast, Paul Kine, Rad Adventures, Relatively Geeky, Rob Kelly and his accounts, Pod Dylan, Film and Water Podcast, Digest Cast, Mash Cast, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Cast, Ryan Blake, Scott X, The Rolled Spine Podcast Network, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, The 108th Sage, Tim Price, Timothy Witt, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Arborough, and Zoom Yukonori. Oof. All right, folks. Well, my thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably David Gallagher's fault then. Just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there on the show post. Or go to our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash JLI podcast, or you can look it up as Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast if you really like to type a bunch of letters. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast. And email, of course, is JLI Podcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to David Gallagher for helping me cover JLI number 19. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Y'all are the best. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we'll see how Luke's wig creation a bonanza went. Hey everyone, I'm Michael Bailey. And I'm Jeffrey Taylor. You might remember us from such show as From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Whatever happened to that show? Well, it went away, and now it's back. We're back? 
That's right. After taking a year off and having a preview episode on April 1st, all new episodes of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, will be available for download or subscription on your favorite podcatcher starting on May 30th, 2018. We have a lot to talk about right away, like the aftermath of the death of Clark Kent... The end of Season 2 of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. All of the Superman-related annuals under the Year One banner. Superman v. Aliens, dawn of a really good crossover. And so much more as we continue through the triangle-numbered books and the related books for the second half of 1995 as we gear up for that line-wide crossover, Underworld Unleashed. Starring the newly revived Lex Luthor and the Superman crossover, The Trial of Superman. And right around the corner, there's a wedding and a major change for both the costume and powers of the Man of Steel. There's a wedding? Who's getting married? Plus, the side titles, miniseries, and one-shots that we've been really excited to tackle. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Covering the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of Superman. New episodes drop on Thursdays, mostly. Unless they don't, but there's usually a very good excuse. Show notes, images from the comics covered, and back episodes can be found at www.fortressofbailytude.com. Hey there, welcome to the Mirror Factory. I'm the foreman, Max Romero. So let me tell you a little bit about what we do here. The Mirror Factory is a podcast where we talk about your favorite passages from novels, novellas, and short stories. Each episode features a different guest, who will tell us a little about the book their passage is from and why it means so much to them. Then that guest will give us a special reading of their favorite passage for our listeners. If you think you'd like to be a guest on The Mirror Factory, drop us a line at Factory Mirror on Twitter, The Mirror Factory on Facebook, or at MirrorFactoryPodcast at gmail.com. The Mirror Factory is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oop, time to get back to work. Until next time, read a book. Alright folks, we are back from break and let's see. Oh, I do believe I see coming my way the gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful locks of Luke Dobb. How'd it go, buddy? I look so great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, hi, Jag. <laughs> it's good to be back. And, and here I said you were humble earlier. Okay, huh. <laughs> I am being humble, Jag. <laughs> Thanking Luke for gracing us with his presence. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to thank myself. There you go. Well, Luke, uh, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Sure. Uh, you can find me just about anywhere on the interwebs. I'm under the moniker Dob Creative. Dob is spelled D-A-A-B. Uh, I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for all you crafters out there. 
the official website for my design and illustration work is dobcreative.com. If you have any questions about uh, doing commissions, get, uh, you know, inquire about a commission, you can reach out to me using my commission me form on my website. And lastly, if you take a look at my work and you like it and you want to help free me up to do more of it, you can become a supporter on patreon.com. Uh, that's been slow going, getting that up and running and, and building my audience there, but every little bit helps and I'm grateful for, for everybody that does support me there. So yeah, that's where you can find me, all those places. Definitely go out there and support Luke on Patreon, folks. I do. And uh, you can, he does songs, he does art, it's it's fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. So. Super, super great for that too. Yep. So, Luke, any final thoughts on this issue before we head out? Yes, I do, in fact. This issue, actually, it took me a little bit to get going for me, but once it did, it was a hoot. The gags came fast and furious. The action was nonstop. To me, this this issue really is what JLI is all about, because it had everything. It was a perfectly timed comedic dialogue, space travel, rescue missions, costume... We even had a costume change. That's true. Workplace, <laughs> workplace hijinks, big Barda, butts, and everyone <laughs> hating on Nort. So... I absolutely loved it. Uh, everybody, if you haven't read this already, and I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you hadn't, please go check this issue out. It's so much fun. And, and, and you know, for me, I hadn't read it in a long time. And coming back to it, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is absolutely a joy. It absolutely is. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you were here to do this with me, Luke. It has been an absolute treat. So Yeah, thank you, Shag. All right, folks. We'll come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 21. We'll have another guest host to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Come on, folks. You know how this works by now. You're just going to have to wonder for the next month. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Luke. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make some money? Demented old gargoyle! Barda! Uh, I'm not gonna let your temper cost us Oberon's life. I knew you wouldn't let her hurt your old granny, Scott. What do you want? Life on Apocalypse has become very difficult since Great Darkseid vanished. Dear Granny has tried her best to bring order to our world. You mean you've been trying to take over? But there are others who seek to thwart Granny's good intentions. Thurman Bunderbar. That awful, awful man. 